Mofax with Adam Curry for October 3rd, 2020. This is episode number 50. And somewhere across the country from his secret hideout, <laughs> Mr. Mofax. <laughs> Momo, how you doing? I'm doing good, Adam. How about yourself? Yeah, good. I missed you, man. It's been, uh, it's been what? Uh... Two weeks. two weeks? Yeah, two weeks. Well, everybody knows that usually something's going on, and of course, this is not just any episode. This this is 50. It's, it's the big 5-0, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Should we, uh, do we need to do a little bit of celebrating here? Is that... Uh... I think... I think celebration! <laughs> Hold on, Come on. It's, a... it's a celebration! Yeah, we are rocking Cele- and rolling now! Celebration! <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Mo. We made it. 50. That's that's not bad. We have not pod faded. That is a significant number for me. Uh, I actually look at it as like one season. I mean, you know, we normally do a show a week, give or take a, a couple weeks um, in, the, in the in-between. But I, I, I guess this is the end of season one, I, I guess. <laughs> okay. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, there's actually a way to, there's a way to tag that, I think. There's a way to, to tag the a number of episodes as a season. I got to look into that. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, so um, I'm just, like I said, we started out without a plan. Just two people coming together, having a conversation. And it's grown into what it is. And I am very happy. Oh, I'm very happy. You, you should also be proud, man. This uh, <laughs> really put something amazing together here. There's even people doing No Agenda and MoFax meetups now. It's like it's become a whole thing. And um, and I guess I should ask if you're planning it. Well, I don't know if we should ask now. Well, I'm going to ask. Are you planning on going on Hotep Jesus's show? I was asked, and we just got to probably figure out the, the particulars of it. Um but that that is part of the plan. You know why I'm interested, right? Why is that, sir? Well, oh, wait, of course, because you just came <laughs> off of it doing the work. <laughs> well, there's, of course. there's that. Well, there's that part. <laughs> but also, it's a video show. So do we finally get to see the mysterious Mo? That is the particulars of it that we have to discuss. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I'm like, he's not. If he has got a sh- you know. Either you are Denzel Washington or you're so ugly. I don't know which one it is, Mo. I'm I'm leaning towards Denzel, but it's, man. It's the, it's the, no, it's not that. It's one, and I, and I used to do music. I still do music. Yeah. But I, the reason why I never took it seriously is because I never wanted to be a celebrity. Right. In the sense of face first. So this podcasting, what we do here. Is the best, Is right? a perfect fit for my personality. Well, why don't, why don't you do um, like... Um, like one of those DJs, you know, put a big marshmallow on your head. You're I the- could do that, or or could be like the gorillas and be like the gorillas and create me a uh, animation character. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll figure it out. I'm looking forward to it yeah. either way. I'm I'm just jazzed that you're uh, that you're getting out there and people are hearing your message. Uh, except, you know, right. not, not just through this through this outstanding product that we call MoFax with Adam Curry. And you know what, Adam? If this is it, this is more than enough for me. And I, I'm just—I'm not being uh, modest there. I actually in, miss when we don't do a week. I, I know people are like, oh well, it's go. It, sometimes it goes two weeks. I actually miss those weeks because this is a great conversation to have every week, and we don't talk 
hardly ever outside the show so no it kind of limits when i get to talk, talk to you like, anyway I, yeah, so. I'm, not doing a, I'm not doing a podcast i'm just hanging out with mo fine hearing what he's thinking about exactly well sometimes we do a little text if there's like something spectacular and of course now the uh uh the this scenario has taken an interesting plot twist with uh 45 savage down with the rona so you know, 45 the, down man 45, 45. Seven down <laughs> but, but, but hey with all great heels yeah is the comeback <laughs> so I, I'm, so just be aware of that oh <laughs> you're so right he's got to have the comeback oh my goodness well i'm for another deconstruction another time right now i suggest we uh, spin up that wheel of clips let's see what we're going to talk about today on mo facts with adam curry round and round it goes the wheel of facts where it stops nobody knows well mo kind of knows because he's the one that puts it all together the topic for episode number 50 is i prefer ados that <laughs> that makes very clear who you're talking about i know that voice <laughs> i know that voice okay sound familiar yes it does all right well i, I don't know if i should be worried or not right now it's like i'm getting my report card no what this is is to catch everybody up we have a lot of uh new listeners especially when you uh drop that bombshell uh, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um on the rogan show so we go all over the place here we and we don't you know whatever's hot at the moment sometimes we talk about that sometimes we talk about things that or nobody's covering. We call it all over the place. So with this episode, I want to go in chronological order. And I tried a fool's errand of squeezing everything in <laughs> chronologically. Yes. We'll be here until uh, Sunday, everybody. But yes, okay. <laughs> right. No, but what I the cut the cutoff is sixteen nineteen. Right. Which, <laughs> that that's where, that's where um, we're starting, or to, we 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 ending. <laughs> No, that's where we, well, this is like where we're starting and ending, but we're going to start there because that's the narrative. We're like right. we said, we're not historians. No. <laughs> what we do is examine narrative. And, and that's where the narrative starts of the ADOS uh, lineage. And then we're going to wrap up somewhere around uh, the, the civil rights movement. Now, it might not be exactly chron- uh, chronological, but I think this will help people to understand what our claim when i say our ados's claim is the reason why it's a legal claim and not like a social program or a welfare program and then understand it goes past from from our, from what we claim we only want to be um repaired from that point to the end of legal slavery but the effects of it go way past the, the end of the legal slavery sure and i want to illustrate that so hopefully you know, I mean, it'll cover a lot of throwback clips, but I didn't want to keep it as like a, okay, so a best so, of show. So, so if I understand, so the, how it's how this works is it's a nice refresher course for people who've been along for, for 49 episodes so far. But if you're brand new, it's a great way to catch up. You can always go back and get all the detail in episodes one through 49. Is that, do I, am I hearing that right? Correct. And it's going to be in as much chronicle, chronological order as possible. Oh, this will be great. So you can see the buildup. Yes. <laughs> because no, before we're like, here, this is there, This there, is like here, an, an on-ramp episode. If you're just joining the party, here's an on-ramp. Correct. And uh, with that said, let's get on the on-ramp with uh, number two. 
1619, when the first Africans were brought to the British colonies by ship to Jamestown, Virginia, they held the legal status of servant. But as the region's economic system became increasingly dependent on forced labor, we descended into slavery. The institution of American slavery developed as a permanent, hereditary system centrally tied to race. Millions of black people were forcibly taken from Africa, crammed on ships and brought to the Americas through a dangerous and deadly journey that crossed the Atlantic. Millions died. Once on our shores, slavery deprived the enslaved person of any legal rights or autonomy and granted the slave owner complete power over the black men, women, and children legally recognized as property. An ideology of white supremacy, a narrative of racial difference was created to rationalize and justify the continuation of slavery. Oh, okay. I I, have I heard this clip? I don't think so. No, this is, this is new. So yeah. we're going to have some new stuff uh, thrown in there to bridge together some gaps that we kind of... Um, didn't cover because we never really wanted to focus on slavery and I still don't want to focus on the ins and outs of particulars of slavery but what can I go back for a second let me let me let me start where I'm, let me start at the end and go back to the beginning okay right now in 2020 <laughs> black people are having a maturation process politically Obvious. and in that in that process um reparations or as i like to newly call it atonement <laughs> is part of that and that is the when you compare it to reproductive rights the roe versus wade if you're talking about um uh immigration rights it's amnesty uh that kind of it's the hard ask <laughs> reparations is the hard ask for this political maturation okay so I want to understand people to understand, like, how did we get here in 2020 having this conversation? And that's why we're going all the way back to the narrative. Is that, does that make sense? Does, yeah, it is does. That clear now? It, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, in order to understand how we're here today, we have to st- step back in time and bring it all the way forward. And the key word is narrative, because at the end of that clip, I don't know if you caught it or not. Yeah, it was like a narrative uh, was created for the embarrassing situation that was at hand. Yes, and I'm going to jump out the window once again and say <laughs> the narrative of slavery is just as dangerous, if not as dangerous or not as impactful as the actual, as the actual facts. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Because this is what held us mentally captive from, you know, the late 1800s to 2020 is that narrative that has been cr- uh, created uh, and to do so we need to look into that narrative so hopefully everybody understands where we're headed and um why i'm framing it this way um i think so so okay so to get into that narrative now we got to go to a throwback clip and this is from show 38 and this is massa speaks is it possible that white people have something to do with the lack of ability for blacks to assimilate into this culture absolutely uh the white man has certainly been prejudiced and to quite an extent unfair but customs die awful hard it takes takes a long time and everyone knew years ago that the negro would have to be given equality but in the south knowing negroes as we think we do 
we realize it would take time. It's, it's been compared to, to straightening teeth. It takes a slow, steady pressure. You can't do it with a hammer. And, and white people's attitudes will change in time. I'm a lot more liberal than I was five years ago, and I know I'll be a lot more liberal five years from now, and I think almost everyone else is in that category. So what I catch in this clip is uh, the term equality, and I hear this uh, gentleman saying, I'm a lot more liberal. I'm getting more liberal. Whoa, that's interesting yeah, in the context the fir- of but today. But the first thing, he says, first thing he says is we were unfair, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> which a synonym of unfair is unjust mm-hmm. or unjust. Uh, I think it's unjust, but so if you're saying you're not, you weren't just, that's where the legal claim comes in at like, ah. okay, you were unfair yes, and you have a descendant, Mr. Hastings is clearly a descendant of, of slave masters and he's saying we were unfair to these people. We knew this and we knew we were going to have to let them go, but in his mind, it's like, we need to go slow. We need to you know, you can't can't trust them to be on their own, <laughs> even though, you know, <laughs> these people were. Yeah, I mean, but that's that narrative that was shaped in his mind and in his forefathers minds that we are the caretakers of these poor, helpless people. Yeah. Now, fast forward. It's pretty much the political liberal mindset that we have to think for these people. <laughs> We can't let them off the plantation right away. Right. You know, we got to right. feed them, spoon feed them social programs and make, you know, make things like, but I don't want to go there. But I'm just saying that this mindset of, well, I'll let Mr. Hastings continue on and what his mindset and what he thinks black people were at the time. What has tended to make you more liberal? Well, realization that the Negro is a human being like anyone else. Mr. Hasty, what did you think we were before you began to think of us as human beings? Well, in a, in a way, we thought of you almost as a very superior pet. <laughs> Something, or rather someone, we had to take care of. Because we had to do so much of their thinking for them. We had to do almost everything uh, for them that, except living their own own lives. Anything outside, we, we had to do for them. And this is recording from 1968, correct? 1968, yes. Yeah, I was alive. The... <laughs> I was alive. I was, I was uh, four. Yeah, it was 12 years before I was born. So, I mean, yeah. just to put that in perspective, I'm, I consider myself a young person, <laughs> a relatively young person. Uh-huh. And for somebody to talk like, to say that it was the realization like it never dawned on him. Now, is he being to be honest for him to sit down and have this interview? I think he is being honest. Yeah. It's, that it was a, a revelation to him to say, Oh, you know what? They are human because <laughs> if you grow up for 60, 70 years, and you've been it. grained for yep. three or four generations that they're not human. Uh, they're, you know, the livestock or, you know, property, pet, these things. A pet. A pet. When he fi- it finally dawned on him because he made the, you know, the mission that there are human. They deserve rights. They deserve justice. They deserve to be treated fairly. But now it's the conversation of how do we go move forward? 
<laughs> right. And this is the same converse conversation now with so-called black people. How do we move forward? Uh, do we just, you know, give them their reparations? Because you hear a lot of times people say, well, all they're going to do is spit it on Gucci. Well, I mean, it's, like, you know, that, that, <laughs> it's interesting you say that. I just wanted to make this one point that when I was uh-huh. talking to Hotep Jesus, he actually said, well, you know, because we were talking about Trump's platinum plan, which I just love the marketing of, of the platinum plan. He said, well, what good is that? He says that they're just going to spend it on Gucci. And I and what I didn't say, which I only thought of later, is I wanted to say, hold on a second. What happened to blacks aren't a monolith? That was actually a really stupid right. thing he said. I was like, wow, I wish and, I'd come up with that at the moment. And it's funny you said that because somebody in the YouTube comments were saying, well, you need to give them jobs or give us jobs. I don't know how he was, how he actually framed it, if he was ADOS or not ADOS, but he's like, what we need is jobs. And I'm like, to th- say that, you're trying to say that there are some of us are not productive and right. can't handle right. an influx right. of money and can't handle... So, we need to stop that now. Yeah. And nobody ever says that somebody that's a victim of a car crash or a workman's comp claim <laughs> yeah. to say, you know what? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Your exactly. Honor, we can't give them their, their just due because all they're going to do is spend it on, you know. On Gucci. On Gucci. Yeah, the right. judge is like, no, uh, something happened. <laughs> You're the fault of it. Let's atone. It's also just not true. And, and the more I think about it, and especially with that analogy that you're using, it's really a dumb thing for someone to say, especially from Hotep. It's like, wow, you know, no, I was just, no, I, I wasn't awake enough to catch it at the time. No, no I will say this. There are going to be some people that misuse their money. Well, of course, like there of are course, some, of course. Just like there are some people that misuse the, the, um, the money that you receive for, um, Corona. Yeah, of course. So to say that, I mean, that's fine. That doesn't take away the fact that there's a, a legal claim to it, but I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I just right. want to lay out. This is the mindset, you know, uh, well, uh, even, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. I just want to recap. So I like how you put this because that, that actually helps me a lot. Um, it was unjust what happened. That's the legal event. Uh, very much like a car crash. I like that analogy. Right. And so now we have the determination. So we know who's at fault. There's actually, it's, it's an admitted uh, admitted mistake or fault, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Uh, now we have to finalize the payment. Yes, that's that's all it is. It's just like a class action suit with uh, Monsanto or anything else. You've harmed people. Now it's who gets to collect. Another, they, another they, great analogy. Let's keep that going. <laughs> Just like Monsanto. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. What? There's no difference. It's, it's harm one way or the other. Okay. Excellent. So I just want to lay out the claim here because the claim I'm sorry, is stop. I'm going inter- to interrupt you one more time because you just yes, triggered yes, my brain. Please, it's no, it's please, going to help the cause. going to help the cause. This is like a shareholder class action suit. And I like this analogy more because uh, you can say uh, being ADOS is your representation that you own a share of stock um and a -hmm. class action suit they always say hey were you a shareholder between this date and that date so we can say between 1619 and whatever end date you know 1968 uh here's your share and they don't ask were you uh investing for day trading were you they don't ask any of this stuff just did you own it 
at this point in time, you will get a piece of the settlement. And that's a fantastic analogy. And that's why we had to frame it as a legal claim, because yeah. if you don't, people think it's a social program or welfare yes, program. It's, yes, it's yes, really yes. not. It's And you know what? I'm going to say this. Not every black person um, that has been in America for a substantial amount of time come from the lineage of slavery. Correct. And once once we do the paperwork on those people, they'll be set free from mental slavery. Because it's like, okay, we did the back, backlog. You don't come from lineage of slavery. Okay, so, now so you're good. What's your excuse? <laughs> you're good. <laughs> now, now put this yellow now, star on your jacket. <laughs> now, but no, what that does is to say, okay, now I can't be blanketed in right. with this victimization mentality. I'm free. You set me free to let me know, first of all, because I've said it on the show before, knowing our lineage is a tangible. Because <laughs> yep. Knowing where you come from is very valuable, um, valuable, valuable and important because I have I'm surrounded by pictures of my grandfathers and great grandfathers. And I look at these pictures like, who are you mm-hmm. and why, what part of you am I? I mean, am, what part of you is in me? Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, these these things are important. That's why no man in the house. Those kind of things are very detrimental because you don't know who, who am I? Yeah. You know what I mean? Who, you can't follow. You can't trace the lineage. Right. So I'm, I hope I'm laying the claim out and I'm going to further lay the claim out because, as I say again, that's a majority of the underpinnings of the maturation process of ADOS people. All right. So with that said, let's get into slavery to mass incarceration, too. American slavery was often brutal, barbaric and violent. In addition to the hardship of forced labor, enslaved people were maimed or killed by slave owners as punishment for working too slowly, visiting a spouse living on another plantation, or even learning to read. Enslaved people were also sexually exploited. The United States Congress finally banned the importation of slaves from Africa in 1808. Slavery was widely considered a gross human rights violation, yet enslavement was retained and persisted. The 1808 Declaration caused the demand for slave labor to skyrocket in the Lower South, and the domestic slave trade grew to meet this demand. Between 1808 and 1860, the enslaved population of Alabama grew from less than 40,000 to more than 435,000. In 1833, the Alabama legislature banned free black people from residing in the state, meaning that enslavement was the only legally authorized status for African Americans. I didn't know that. I did not know that. (laughs) It's a lot to unpack in that clip, so we might have to go back. (laughs) This is one. 1808 to 1860, slavery grows from 40,000 to 400,000. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? So there's a narrative out there that all of these people came from the West Coast of Africa, <laughs> which I'm not a subscriber to that. I, I'm a subscriber to there was people that came here from Europe <laughs> through transportation mm-hmm. uh, or fleeing Europe that were... Um, so-called black there were people here native to this land that were so-called black uh-huh. and there were people that brought here from west coast of africa now what percentages of these three people that make up the ados community i don't know but i'm just saying to grow from 1808 to 1860 that's 52 years you go 10x on the population 
and then they they pass this law that says nobody in the state that can be black and be free. Now you start to see where this becomes a legal claim against the United States. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's it's le- it's all legal. We're not talking about emotions. We're not talking about any of that. We're saying what happened here, and nobody, you know, we just gloss over these things. You know, and then school is like, oh, you were a slave, then King came. No, you were a slave. Abraham Lincoln <laughs> came, free. he freed you. <laughs> and, yeah, King and, came, he got you your civil rights. Now here we are. Yeah, what's your problem? There's a lot to unpack, <laughs> which we're not going to pack here. Right. But I'm just saying these numbers don't job, and we have to look at it two ways. Before 1808, you had the international slave trade where you're bringing slaves in from other places in the world. At that point, it became illegal to do. So we said we we have to start. And this is where you start looking at selective breeding and breeding processes. Yeah, I was going to say that has to be a part of it. It does. It does. But also, and I think 12 Years of Slave kind of covered this, where they were capturing free people. Yes. <laughs> They're like, oh, you're black. Go you're, in. you're a slave now. Right. That and it was it was state sanctioned. This this is not oh well you know it was kind of well no just, you just so I understand if someone was captured in the in the in America if it was indigenous uh-huh. uh, person now they don't have the same lineage right no the lineage is American descent of slavery <laughs> so it doesn't matter how you got in there. You were a slave at that point, and you were then subsequently. We have a, a lineage that leads to descendants of slavery. Exactly. Doesn't matter where you, well, if you came from Africa or not. Here's the strangest thing I find, and it's a lot of historians that support me on my narrative. Everywhere in the world, you found heavy mel- melanated people. No matter where you go, you know, you know sure. Australia, you have the Aborigines, even you know, in the, yeah, everywhere, everywhere, except yeah. for America. We're just going to let that one fly. I mean, we're, we're, I'm, I, I, I'm not trying to digress. I'm just saying. Don't, isn't that strange? Well, what do you mean, isn't it strange? That you go everywhere in the world. <laughs> yes. And find heavy melanated people except for America. This landmass, North America, yeah. how, all the Americas, you know, however you want to slice it. Mm-hmm. No heavily, no heavily melanated people here. But right. I, just, I, I digress, and I'm sorry for doing that. But I just want to point out that forty thousand to four hundred thousand number just sticks in my crawl. Like, how does that happen? Were y'all mass producing babies like that, or right? Whereas a lot of free people here that you're saying got caught up in slavery due but, to the but legal this, changes. But, but, so you're saying some. You're saying something. I think I just want to make sure I understand it. You're saying is Ados is American descendants of slavery. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you came from Africa. It means you were legally enslaved by a state of the United States, a legal event. And it doesn't matter what your lineage before that is. At that moment, the lineage that passes on is considered ADOS. Right, because they might have came here for, like I said, 1492 to that point. You had free people coming here from all over the world. Right. So, what's, you know, so what's some the of the slave off? owners were black. What's, what's the 1808. cutoff? 1808. 1808. And what was the event in 1808? That's when the, they passed the law that they said illegal. that you can't bring any more slaves in 
like on ships, basically. Yeah. I mean, if you if you're homegrown, <laughs> if you're homegrown slaves, they're fine. But I mean, I'm not saying that it's like a. I'm just saying make right. it comical, but it's it is comical. So, but this is also it, this is also how you can have people who are uh, seemingly for the eye white, but they can be ados. Now that's a slippery slope, okay. which I'm not against. <laughs> with like I said, I'm, if, if they want to make a claim, I'm not. I, I will be a hypocrite. To say if you were Irish, you were brought here in transportation, you will make a claim. That's fine. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there were some heavy, heavily melanated people mm-hmm. that looked like me that were on this landmass. And they were enslaved. Prior to 1619. Just say that. Just mm-hmm. say that's the cutoff. And for some reason, they may have been enslaved. And, and I know it's a hard thing to get your head around, but it's like those numbers don't make sense to me to jump like that. No, no, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. So part of it is, a, I guess, as you said, possibly breeding program, but the rest is obviously grabbing other people who were just handy. And they, 12 years of slave, tell you that. I mean, and they yeah. say it was, it was black people owning black people. So if I'm a came here to slave, you came here to slave, how'd I jump you? I mean, like, I don't, I, <laughs> how'd you get free and not, I, I, I like I said, Woosa. Let's bring it back. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. So what we have to understand now is what fueled the need for slaves. <clears throat> and there's two things that fueled it. One was sugar. 400 years ago this month in August 1619, the first African slaves arrived in Virginia. It's regarded by many as the beginning of America's long relationship with slavery. The 400th anniversary and the ways slavery has affected American history since then are being commemorated. One of the more notable efforts is the New York Times 1619 Project, which is spotlighting parts of history that are less well known. We are going to focus on some of the economic legacies, including the larger connections with modern capitalism. Specifically, we're going to look at how the production of American sugar, known as white gold, Mm. helped to fuel slavery and became ingrained in our society. Historian Khalil Gibran Muhammad of Harvard's Kennedy School wrote about that for the New York Times. Louisiana, he wrote, led the nation in destroying the lives of black people in the name of economic efficiency. Uh, Sugar was the most dominant economic incentive for European colonization of the Americas. No other crop was as abundant or successful in drawing Europeans uh, to these shores, and I mean by that North America and South America, for the purpose of cultivating sugar for a worldwide market. So sugar, <laughs> sugar brought them in, <laughs> right? And we, we we're familiar with the uh, the triangle uh, Atlantic trade slave. I mean, slave trade. Mm-hmm. You know, sugar came. You know, from the West Indies came yep. to America. America uh, fixed the uh, the rum, and then it. You're saying they went back, brought the took the rum back to Europe. You know, brought back slaves. I mean, that's the triangle. You know, uh, I'm not oversimplifying it, but it, it just in that sense. So we have this product, sugar. And that was the really the first cash crop that got America off of its feet. So, because a lot of people say, "Well, you know, um, I didn't have slaves, and my ancestors didn't have slaves." That's the argument, right? Right. But there would be no America if it wasn't for sugar. 
or cotton, which we're going to talk about later. And if there's no slaves, there's no sugar. Right. So, I mean, if you do the one-to-one correlation, we ain't sitting here right now if it wasn't for sugar for cotton. And those two products thrive off of free labor. And it had to had to use free human labor yeah. to, to even you know, sustain it. So, you understand the claim. Please, stop me. Slow me down. If I need to slow down, no, I'm 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 following along perfectly. I it's I'm making the case. This is really new for me. You are. It's like uh, it's the honorable uh, Mo Fax. Yes, sir. You have a claim to make. (laughs) State your case. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get it. And you've never done this. It's very intriguing. I love it. No, the reason why I have to do this because you have to explain if you just over. Gloss it over. over, over sim- we Oversimplifying. Yeah, oversimplifying. Right. Yes, exactly. We were slaves. You owe us. It's like, my people didn't come here to, you know, Ellis Island. Why do I owe you? Mm-hmm. Well, you partake in, in the American system. That's just like, I'm going to draw an analogy. If I go to Germany today and pick up a German cit- uh, citizenship, say I'm leaving America, mm-hmm. they're going to take out a piece of my taxes is going to go to Holocaust survivors. Correct. I can't say to them, hey, I'm not that German. 20, <laughs> right. I just moved here in 2020. Why are you taking this out of my taxes? They're going to say, no, as a country, we owe them because how why we how we failed them as a p- group of people. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Yeah, that is no doubt. So, but what will we go wrong at? And I'm going to say we as a if you want to look as a group of people. We allow the people to speak for us to speak from a place of hatred. It's like, you owe us, Whitey. You know, mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. it, white people are like, I don't owe you anything. Right. It's, a, dif- say- it's a difference between the entity or the corporation known as the United States uh, who has a debt owed versus the white people. Correct. Yeah. And that's why you see people going down the street, taking people's food, saying, say Black Lives Matter. You owe me this steak dinner. You know, It's like, no, that's not how this works. We have a claim against the United States government. Yeah. They allow these practices to go on. Now, if you're a citizen of that government, then you have to pay into it. Just like the people in internment camps. This I'm is, sure some of my is, tax dollars. Yeah, this is so <laughs> sick now. Because uh, I wish I'd known this before I said anything, before I opened my big mouth anywhere. This is very. No, 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 no bear with me. This is very, this is really, really critical. This is the distorted, the distortion. Because, of course, you know, like California, they just passed a bill. Oh, we're going to do a study on reparations. Okay, we know how that ends. But it's all the narrative is white people did this to black people instead of the United States had this had this system and then enacted these laws. And then that then that was an actual legal violation. No different than um, many other uh, human tragedies that have been re- uh, repaired one way or the other. And so this really gives you an identification factor. And it removes it removes color from the entire conversation. Correct. Gosh, I like it. But color does play into it because we always got to think about the bottom as well. Mm. <laughs> and the bottom was synonymous with color, but we'll and that's why we gets hairy when you start talking about post slavery. Right. And that's why I like I mean to make a clean case, we just need to talk about 1618, you know, uh, I mean, excuse me, 1619 to, you know, when slavery ended. That's 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 what we frame it because 
of course it's going to blossom out of there and it's going to you know it's going to have ripple effects to you know the lineage down the line mm-hmm. but if you keep the case there then you will be uh make an easier case for you for the for the reparations or what i call now atonement to happen uh but I guess we have one more sugar clip. If we, number seven, I think. Yep. Let's get into that one. And I know I'm asking you to skip over a lot of history here, but you move forward to today, uh, to the to the 20th and even into the 21st century, and you write about how uh, the legacy of what happened in Louisiana and other places still plays a role in the economy, uh, a vital role in the economy of this country. Well, if we go from sugar to cotton, uh, we basically explain uh, two crops that uh, in their totality explain uh, much of the infrastructure of our capitalist economy to this day. Uh, We can explain everything from uh, the abundance of land that was originally held by the indigenous and the labor of enslaved people as America's competitive advantage. Uh, By the 19th century, cotton, for example, was uh, essentially the major export of the United States. And that cotton export uh, helped make possible the wealth not only in enslaved people, but also the wealth of banks in the North uh, that were responsible for financing investments in this country that were often mortgaged on the basis of enslaved people. There's no way to really understand the economic might of America by the 19th century without understanding the role of cotton slavery and earlier sugar slavery in it. If I make, may make a comment, this is really fascinating. The American capitalist system, which is, is built on credit, debt, and um, commodities, mm-hmm. really comes from this. Comes from yes. this period with lever- <laughs> leveraging humans as a commodity and an asset directly translated into the white gold that is sugar and later cotton. This, this is mind-blowing. I love this. Because sugar brought them in. Yep. But cotton changed the game. And that's what really, it really upset the um, balance of power between the North and the South. You already had sugar. You already had the, the um, land in the South. You already had, you know, the agriculture. You had the free labor. And now you throw this thing called cotton in, which cotton, <clears throat> well, if you have anything else further to say, because I don't, like I said, I, I won't. Somebody said about us interrupting, but that's part of the show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's no, what no. we do. It's because it's like, hey, stop right there, because I don't want you to gloss over that point. So, oh, not only that, but I'm just trying to figure it out, and this is, I'm, my light bulbs are going off the whole time. So, it, yeah, <laughs> this is, this is how, this is how it works. This is the only way it can work. So you, we've laid out sugar, free labor got america off to a great start as a nation yeah hey thanks (laughs) then you have the invention of the cotton gin and the cotton the cotton becomes king cotton was the centerpiece of life in the american south for much of the 19th century the well-being of every entity in the region depended upon the health of the annual cotton crop the vast influence of cotton was found in virtually every aspect of southern life The Rise of the Cotton Culture During the colonial and federal eras, upland cotton was not a profitable crop because it was too labor-intensive to remove the seeds. 
That changed with the invention of the cotton engine, or gin, in the late 18th century. When Eli Whitney, a recent college graduate, arrived at Mulberry Grove Plantation near Savannah, Georgia, in the early 1790s, he did not know that he would alter the course of his young country's history. The cash crop in Georgia after the war is going to be tobacco for the 1780s and 90s. Um, it's only in the 1800s when they figured out, when you know, 1793 is when Whitney invents the gin and figures out how to get those pesky seeds out of the center of upland cotton. Um, and it's only then that it becomes even profitable. And so we see this switch over from tobacco to cotton. But interestingly, those who had become successful tobacco planters and who had slaves to do the work are going to make that transition to a new crop very easily. Plantation system is already there. It's just a different crop that they begin to grow. Wow. <laughs> I also learned something that sounds really simple. I never really understood the term cotton gin. Yeah, because when I hear cotton, I hear cotton, I hear gin, I think alcoholic beverage. I never quite understood what that was. This may sound really yeah. stupid, but now now I hear it was just an abbreviation for engine. Oh, hello. It's what it would do it, as I said in the video, I mean, as I said in the clip, your cotton ball or the bloom had these seeds inside of it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even worth the human effort to try to, to remove the out. seeds. Right. To make be able to, to convert it to textiles, but when you have this cotton gin come on, I think they said in 1793, yeah. uh, 15 years before this change, and now we're not going to bring any more international slaves, and we're going to go domestic. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that we're, might be connected. <laughs> who knows to, to this? Uh, it just ten times increase. <laughs> hmm, interesting. Right. Yes, I got you. So the once the seeds were removed. It's like, give me all the cotton I can get my hands on because now we can use this as textiles. And that made the explosion in America. Um, And this is the case to saying there would be no modern day America if it wasn't for these uh, inventions and the labor there because you still have to feed the cotton gin. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Once the cotton gin was readily available and cotton farming began to boom. The influence of the crop grew until it touched every aspect of Southern life. Cotton, as James Henry Hammond across the river said, became king. And it ruled economic policy, labor policy, and politics before it was all over with. Raising Cotton. Cotton is a plant that's been around for thousands of years. Cotton can only be grown um, in climates that have a certain amount of days of sunny, warm weather. Um, Cotton had to be hand-picked until the mechanical picker was introduced in 1927. And it's a very uh, difficult crop to produce. You basically walk along the rows, bent over, and pick these bowls off uh, one at a time. They're very rough and they can tear your hands up. Um, 
a experienced cotton picker in the days before the mechanical picker could pick 250 pounds of cotton a day. Uh, an average cotton bale weighs 500, so that gives you some idea of just how labor intensive it was, and that's why so many slaves were necessary for the cotton industry before the Civil War. What what a what a tragedy that you know I watched Roots, you know Twelve Years a Slave, of course, and many other uh, as you would call them uh, trauma based entertainment products. None of them tells this story. An average cotton picker could pick two hundred and fifty pounds of cotton a day, <laughs> and it and wow. it had to be hand picked. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Even before 1927, which slavery had well ended, or we, as we are set to believe, yeah, <laughs> had well right, ended right. up to that point. So up until the end of slavery in 1793, I believe is the date, who was doing all that cotton picking? You needed humans. Yeah. Without, without, the, without the so-called ADOS person or black person, none of this, none of this kicks off. And it's clear as day, cotton became king. As, as so much so, it was one of the driving factors for destabilizing, you know, the uh, the Union against the, you know, right. what I'm saying against the Confederacy. Yep. You know, Confederacy said, "We got the land, we got the cotton, we got the free labor. We're rocking it here." As they said in the clip, they started to dictate political policy. Yeah. Now here comes our claim: <laughs> <laughs> the way you shaped your nation. Was beneficial to the you know the 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 um, process of slavery. You're negligent as a nation. This is our claim. Very simple, cut and dry. Mm-hmm. So without those black hands picking those little white balls of cotton, um, modern day America is not what, what it, it is, is today. today. Yeah, of course. I'm just <clears throat> I'm just I'm just. You have to do this because you hear so many arguments and it's not the point about arguments, but we have to, what we do here, we diffuse and deflate narr- counter narratives yeah. to say, this is what was really going on. And what I'm using is just so for a point of reference, this is from the American history through the Southern eyes. So this is not the North <laughs> right. uh, or North sympathizers painting this. These are Southern ears telling you, Hey, we wouldn't be who we was in the South if it wasn't for cotton and by, you know, relation to that without the aid of slaves. Yeah, and it, it, it benefited the entire nation. As a whole. Mm-hmm. With that said, then you had the Civil War kickoff, and I'm going to do a little fast forwarding here, and the North wasn't doing so well. So now we got to go back to another throwback. This is, those are all new clips. Now we had to bring in, because this is why I had to do it chronologically, because we were all over the place, because we went where the show takes us, and that's naturally what we do, but now it's a good time to do some housekeeping and setting things in order, so when people hear things or go back and listen, if they're interested in listening to the older shows, it gives them context to what we're talking about. Now we're talking about uh, Abraham Lincoln and the what the Emancipation Proclamation didn't do. 
Well, what the Emancipation Proclamation was, was a presidential proclamation, and it was part of the war um, plans. So that in essence, what the Emancipation Proclamation did was Lincoln realized that two things were happening. One is that there was a worry that um, European nations might support the Confederacy. There was also a worry about how do we get more and more people to fight for the Union cause? After the initial year, people were saying, well, you know what, I'm not sure I want to fight for this. Mm. Suddenly, Lincoln realized that he could have an impact on the South by taking away workers and labor from the South, encouraging people to then come north, join the Union Army, so therefore you'd have more soldiers, and add a moral tinge to the war. So all of that was behind Lincoln's thinking when the emancipation was issued. The untold story of Honest <laughs> Abe. <laughs> I love that clip. That was such a good and one. To br- and to bring in a modern context to that, this is why. 45 Savage says what he says about Abraham Lincoln. Well, if, if you not saying he's correct, well, no, he's, he, he, he does, does the he, most. He does the, the typical thing is that I've done more for black people than anybody except Abraham Lincoln. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> he, I mean, he knows the story. He knows what's behind it. Just to give a little context to what's going on in, you know, in today's time. So here's Abraham Lincoln setting the slaves free in confederate states <laughs> was an act of war it had nothing to do with his um you know his moral you know his, standings yeah, or none, none at all <laughs> that's uh, that's um episode 37 if anyone wants to go back and hear yeah. the whole thing it's well worth it and just one more thing he said in there he had a fear of the european nations supporting the south why would they do that because maybe they could get a good deal on sugar and cotton Direct. It's like, why go through the United States government? We can go straight to the Confederacy. Right. I will shave a couple of points off, you know, the cotton and sugar. You know, if you help us out. Huh. This this is way bigger than one man owning another per uh, owning other people. This is this, this is the system. This is America. This, this, <laughs> this, this is no, but this is understanding the birthing of the country. And this is why when people say, oh, you should have left or why do you stay in America? Because my my lineage helped build this Mm -hmm. one cotton ball at a time, one sugar cane at a time. If it weren't for those black hands. We have we have we're vested in this nation and we're not going anywhere. And the only thing we and we're not you know what? We're not even standing still waiting on reparations or atonement. But that's not to say we don't have a legal claim to it. Mm hmm. Because I don't, I don't live my my everyday life waiting on a, a reparation check to come to you know to <coughs> make me thrive or ha, make has, me uh, successful. Ha, has anyone ever brought this as a legal claim? Yes, Johnny Cochran actually, mm. and, and and people want to talk about the OJ Simpson theory and why they maybe you know with the cell phone and the right. brain. I think this was more <laughs> this was more upsetting because he was actually trying to do it through a legal claim. Right. Okay. Well, I don't want to drag us down. Um, no, no. I'm glad you asked that question because I am a bigger fan. Here, here's here's how I see it. If we can get it through uh, gov- means of governing, government, you know, politicians, that's one thing. But if you make it a legal claim that you, you're asked to politicians, then is how do you stand on reparations when you're selecting judges? Right. 
totally different. Now yeah. we're seeing, like, let's fast forward to 2020. Everything's about what's her take on Roe v. Wade. What I'm speaking of is the, the new Amy, justice Amy they're trying Coney to appoint. Yeah. As a political tool, reparations, we start asking these people, what is your, what is your, um, what kind of judges will you select when it comes to um, judgments on reparations? Mm-hmm. I'm not looking for the government to solve this problem. Personally, me personally, mm-hmm. I would like to see it done as a legal claim because if you do it as a legal claim, you have, and you get the judges. Say if we, okay, just say if we could get in a time machine, go back to 2016 and say, hey, Trump, we'll vote for you if you only appoint Oh, you know those hundred appointments you have at federal judges <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. those, and those two or three justices that you can appoint only appoint reparation friendly judges. Right. You have my vote. That's how I look at tangible. It's not necessarily have to be a check written by the by the federal government, but you can do things through governing and through legal means that makes it easier in the in the in the court system. Yes, and I think that uh, it possibly if this structure were to go through a legal process, sta- individual states may have different uh, um, different levels of atonement depending on what they were doing and how they were doing it. But if you're part of the union, you're part of the union. Yeah, well, like like you said yeah, about true. stockholding. Yeah, true. Did true, you hold true, stock? True. Did yeah. you? Hold- <laughs> All right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Oh, I'm loving it. And you factor in the way they're throwing money around now, trillions of dollars. It's like, come on. I mean. Oh, no. I mean, but, yeah. it's, it's so obvious to me that we have to create a, a Bitcoin for reparations. I mean, this is digital wallets for everybody. That's the that's my answer. Well, you can print that money. It's so easy, apparently. It, it appears that way to me, but let's not get too far away from the, the trail we're on right now. Let's uh, wrap up with a second clip from uh Uh, Emancipation Proclamation. What about the timing of it? Why did it come when it came on that day at that time? And as as you were just telling us, the the U.S. was already two years into the war by the time it it was signed. Why that timing? Well, what's clear is that Lincoln felt that if he could end the war and restore the Union without ending slavery, that would be okay with him. But by the time the Emancipation Proclamation is issued, Lincoln realized that he had to do something bold. And part of the timing was that he had been working on this for the whole summer. But he realized that he didn't have the sort of moral power to let this go until there was a Union victory. Because after all, what had happened was if he had announced the Emancipation Proclamation and then there was a battle where the Union lost, it would seem like just words on a paper. So what he did was he waited to release the emancipation till after they won the victory in Antietam in 1862. That then made it seem in the minds of many, Europeans and non, that the Union was winning and it gave more power, more moral authority to the emancipation. Well, honest Abe was a was a douche. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he didn't have a he didn't have a moral fiber in his body. Apparently, he, he, he said it. He said and he said more. And we're going to get into that, so we don't really have to linger on that clip too much. But I just want to paint this picture of one: the Emancipation Proclamation did not free any slaves in the Union. Two: I just want as an aside, I want to address one thing: this three fifths a person. Yeah, this three fifths a person thing was from the union, yes. or, or the union states at the time, because when they wanted to count, you know, uh, I think for the House of Representatives, um, and and I, I, it gets a little foggy, but to me, but they wanted the South wanted to count each slave as a person, but 
in that time. It's like, okay, now you want to count me as a person, but I'm a property. You know what I mean? Like, I'm property when you, and it's beneficial for you, but then right. when it's not beneficial for you, you want me to be a human. Yeah. But then the South, North was like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. And then they compromise. That's <laughs> why I call it the three-fifths compromise. Yeah, yeah, you can't be a full human. So just to go to show you the the difference between the Union and the Confederate, and I'm not pro-Confederate in any way. I'm just going to lay these things out as just so we can have a better understanding of the narrative of Abraham Lincoln, the, the great liberator. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was drugged or pulled or as the next person that's going to speak, Mr. Uh, Lerone Bennett Jr., he said he was whipped uh, into um, morality. The title on the book is Abraham Lincoln's White Dream. What's that mean? It means that contrary to what most people think, Abraham Lincoln's deepest desire was to deport all black people and create an all-white nation. It sounds like a wild idea now, and it is a wild idea, but from about 1852 until his death, he worked feverishly to try to create deportation plans, colonization plans, uh, to send black people either to Africa or to South South America or to the islands of the sea. On December the 1st, 1862, in which he asked Congress to pass three constitutional amendments. One, to buy the slaves. Second, to to declare free all people who had actually escaped. But the third one, his proposed 15th Amendment, asked Congress to allocate money to deport black people to another place. Wasn't that the, like, something off the coast of Georgia? Didn't, wasn't that the plan at the time? No, I think you're talking, um, no, I think that. Confused. I think that's Jekyll Island. Is that Jekyll Island you're talking? <laughs> no, I thought there was also that the, his idea was he wanted to purchase some land, and that's where he'd deport everybody to. No, I think it was Panama, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. He wanted <laughs> this out, no, out, 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 move him down. <laughs> the reason why, though, if we're looking at the context of what we just covered in the previous clips, if you leave the blacks there and you free them, that's still a source of of labor. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to destabilize the South, you have to remove their force their, of labor. Their livelihood, yeah, exactly. Because if you don't, then they, they'll just rise again. So that, so that was still... <laughs> no act- pun intended. Right, right. So that actually wasn't even... Um, none of this is from, from a racist standpoint. He, he was just like, how do I screw the South? All right, let's take, those, let's take them all out. Let's move them out of the country. Well, Abraham Lincoln has his own thoughts of having an all-white nation. And I make the point also, and, and, and almost everything I say in here, I take from Lincoln or from documents of the time. It was not just something he wanted to push black people out. He had an idea of, 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 of this great, giant, vacuum sound, black people leaving and white people from all over the world coming here and creating this all-white nation. As a matter of fact, I say, as you know, in his I Have a Dream speech at Alton, Illinois, in in 1858, he called for a haven, a white haven for free white people everywhere, 
the world over. Now these are Lincoln's work. And the interesting thing about that is that he underlined these four words, free white people everywhere. He underlined them. This was his I have a dream speech. He was passionately committed to to, to deporting black people and creating a white nation. Let me say in, in, in extenuation, uh, he believed that that was the only way to solve the race problem. I, I found that offensive and, and strange, but he believed that that was the only way to solve the race problem. He said over and over again, he did not believe that black people and white people could live together in equality in the United States of America. Was this the, uh, the House Divided speech? Was that the one? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Okay. All right, well, pay no attention to me then. We'll, yeah, no, we'll but the moving. point I want, the, the, yeah, no, the points I want to make is with the, what he's saying about Abraham Lincoln is Abe wanted to get all black people out. Who would be the new bottom? Because there always has to be a bottom. Right. White Southerners. Ah. Uh. And everybody else that they brought in. Because you always have, to, but the white South, I'm sure, is like, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you hey, can't we, get rid of our we, bottom we, 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 <laughs> exactly otherwise wait who becomes the bottom when ours is gone uh oh just, just one of, and, and it, it, it infuriates me when these a lot of these smart talking heads go on with their Ivy League you know, saying educations and lament about oh honest Abe how could Trump say he's better than honest Abe and I'm not supporting Trump here <clears throat> I'm just saying if you know what I know just by looking at, you know what I'm saying, videos on C-SPAN and reading books by, you know, by um, Lerone Bennett Jr., Honest A wasn't that honest and he wasn't that beneficial to black people. Um, well, it didn't, doesn't seem like he was hiding it. <laughs> yeah, at, at all. <laughs> no one was talking about that. No one, no one was worried about him being racist back in the day. They were just worried about the, the numbers and the financials and the mechanics of it. And that's what frustrates me yeah when you hear these talking heads go on television and that's why it's even more dangerous when it's people that look like me but don't share my lineage it's like right. are you doing this uh honestly are right. you put up to this to keep us in this mental slavery that we're in well i and would, i'll say this again. yeah I, I would posit that uh, a lot of the talking heads you're talking about have been uh, uh programmed into thinking this way so the the actual evil comes from where that the narrative has developed and is being taught. True. Very true. Uh, and that's at, at these uh, liberal universities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you have others. all the facts here. I mean, just dig it. Look it up. It's in the book. Um, so now we have to go to the actual 1619 project and a podcast they have. And this is going to cover. Now, okay, let me let me let me fill in the blanks here. Um, as there was one story where a general had taken on a bunch of runaway slaves, but they were weighing down on his resources, and the Confederacy of Confederate troops were in hot pursuit, and he had to make a decision: Do I keep carrying these people on with me, and they use up all my resources? A Union uh, general, mm -hmm. or do I get rid of them in some way? So they come to this bridge. I mean, they come to this creek. It's too deep to cross and too wide to cross without a bridge. The Union soldiers go across the bridge. And all this is covered in episode 36. You can hear it 
hope it's not a spoiler alert, but this is from the 1619 poc- official podcast from New York Times, of course. They get to the bridge, they cross, then they pull the bridge up and leave the runaway slaves to be slaughtered and recaptured by the Confederate soldiers. Now, I say all this to say, now this is where we get to this next set of clips, and this is what happens after word gets back about this event. When word gets back to Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, he is outraged. He has Sherman pull together a meeting with 20 black church leaders. There's a transcript of this meeting, and it shows that these two men, Stanton and Sherman, actually turned to this group of black leaders and asked them, what do you want for your own people? Speaking for the group, one of the men tells them, the way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and turn it and till it by our own labor. That is, by the labor of the women and children and old men, and we can soon maintain ourselves and have something to spare. Huh. This is where 40 Acres and the Mule came from. Of course, yeah. And the original claim, (laughs) and it was made to the north, not the south. (laughs) That's that's the irony of it. How crazy as has, I mean, how history... And uh, the, as we're talking about narrative, has just been distorted and flipped around throughout history. That's that's very very interesting and disturbing. And, and I want to make one one quick aside because you always say this. You just say you always got to have your own platform, right? I mean, you can't be dependent upon you know YouTube or whoever else is going to be filling the blank platform Correct. because they can they can own you in a way. They do own you. <laughs> yes, they um. This is what the slaves were saying, or the free slaves were saying. We want our own land. You know, we don't want, if we have our own land, then we can produce and, you know, grow our own cotton and sugar and cash crops. And compete. And and compete. And compete. So I just want to lay that out there to people. It's important that independent, I hate to say this, but we're media. Um exists because we're able to go outside the narrative and we really can't be like shut down away because of the producers uh, that that keep us going yes but i just, I just want to point that out because you got to have your own land i mean now it's digital land you know? yeah, it's, <laughs> but so it's, true. It's, it's it's property nonetheless so let's wrap up with the the last uh 1619 podcast clip And what's remarkable is that Sherman turns that request of those men for land to work for themselves into a government order, special order number 15. It said that the government would take 400,000 acres that it had seized from the Confederacy and split it up among those thousands of newly emancipated people. This becomes what is perhaps the most famous provision of the Reconstruction period, which we all know as 40 acres and a mule. President Lincoln approves the order, but soon after, he's assassinated. And Andrew Johnson, a Southerner who had once enslaved people himself, takes over the presidency and quickly overturns it. And within a few short months, the small amount of land that had been distributed to Black people was returned to white Southerners. <laughs> Uh-oh. 
<laughs> how how inconvenient these little bits of history that we dig up. We've been at war with the South all this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even know it, really. Conf- confiscate the land. No, I'm saying confiscate. I'm, I'm speaking from the point of the union. Yeah. Confiscate the land. And rather than give it to black people who have been wronged or so-called black people, ADOS, we rather give it back to the, so- the Southerners. How nice is that? And you tell me I, we're not supposed to take this personally, personally on a level? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I totally. This this is such a good way to do this. I really like it. It's even better than those 36, 37 episodes. You know, it's just a lot more coming. It's coming together for me. I love it. It's you know, People have to listen to the show twice sometimes just to catch all the nuance. Yeah. And so what I said in the previous clip to this one is that we have to have our own land, which we do. You know, uh, we have our own thing going here. But to keep that going is nothing but by the producers who keep us going. They do indeed. And uh, we always like to let everybody know we're about to thank them by bringing out one of our favorite clips. I I like new money. I don't know if you do, but (laughs) I hate old money that's wrinkled and dirty and got all the diseases on it. I like new money. And when I give... um, when I give things to people, I like to give stacks of money. It's fun. You ever had a stack of new money? <laughs> Have you? You haven't? Have you? A little stack. A little. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I made you know the big stack where it was brand new. And I like brand new money. I just I don't want any money around me. Is not. I'd almost rather have a, a new one than a brand than an old twenty. Now that's kind of dumb, isn't it? But there's something about new money that excites you. You like hundred dollar bills? Oh yeah, I like oh. new money too. Oh, most beautiful thing on earth is a hundred dollar bill. I ain't seen a woman as good looking as a hundred dollar bill. There's something about a hundred dollar bill that excites you. <laughs> that's right. We love brand new money, stacks of dollar bills, and there's no way we could ever make this show work with advertisements or any commercial sponsorships because it is just too controversial and it always winds up where people want to control what you say if they have control over your income so we decided to run this and produce this as a value for value production which means you can contribute whatever value you get out of listening to the show you can give it back in time talent or treasure uh, all of them are valid, and uh, sometimes people pack it all up into one just in their donation notes alone. So we want to thank what we call our executive producers, and uh, along with that, also our associate executive producers for episode number 50 of MoFax with Adam Curry. And it being episode number 50, uh, automatically, anyone who did the $50 to be an associate executive producer will also be an episode, and a member of the episode club, which only comes around one, once in a while. Uh, and we're kicking off with the top supporter for today. Our number one executive uh, producer is Hey Idiot. Uh, a lot of people at uh, No Agenda would know him as Baron Hey Idiot. And he says this is a make good for a pledge of $10 per episode of the MoFax podcast, which he, I guess he made that pledge to himself. And he says, uh, I would like you to undead deadbeat me. And provide me with some Mo Karma, and thank you so much for doing the work. And all I can say is, hey, idiot, Baron, hey, idiot, thank you. We really appreciate it. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. 
you've got Mo Comer. Great way to kick it off. We really appreciate that, uh, Baron Hay idiot. Matthew Mess, uh, Messer sent us $250. Hello, Mo and Adam. He says, congratulations on show number 50. I've been listening to the show since early March. Your show has been an invaluable resource to help guide me through the Rona and the BLM movement. There have been so many eye-opening moments over the last 49 episodes. I can't wait each week to hear what Mo will have for us all. I finally made it through the show backlog and decided it was time for me to step up and fulfill my part of the value for value model by giving you guys $5 for every episode so far. Wow, that's cool. Your information is worth way more than that, but I got to start somewhere. And then again, I'll say that's the value. That's a lot of money for you. <laughs> that this value, no one can determine what that's worth to you than you. So that is perfect for us and we appreciate it. As a single male in his mid-20s, I got a decent amount of free time in my hands, and I'm interested in finding ways to spend my extra time bringing a positive impact to my community. I'm especially passionate about providing a positive male role model experience to young boys' lives. I had a lot of positive male role models in my life growing up and would like to provide that to others who don't have that privilege. Yes, parent privilege is big with us. I've looked into the Big Brothers Big Sisters organization, but unfortunately with the Rona, they're not accepting new volunteers. I was wondering if you and Mo had any ideas a good organizations to donate in my time to. Any ideas you have would be greatly appreciated. Best regards, Sir Dude Name Matt, Matt Messner. And again, thank you, Matt, for your uh, for your support. Uh, big Brothers Big Sisters, I know. Um, I've been both, actually. A little brother and a big brother in the past. Uh, mm. I don't know what else is out there. Do you know of anything? Your family? No, I'm you're so right, man. You're I, so right. I say this to people all the time, like, for me personally, it's like, what are you doing for the community, Mo? I'm like, okay, I'll start with my kids. Mm-hmm. If I have any free time left, I deal with my nieces and nephews, cousins, you know, and by the time I get down the line, I'm, I'm out of time. Right. So I just <laughs> suggest done. that to a lot of people. There's people that you deal with every day that you could be role models for, or maybe you don't know about. Maybe it's a distant cousin that you don't know about. So start, start with your family. That's, that's my suggestion. Excellent idea. 225 from Stephen Page. Hey, Mo, it's my birthday, October 2nd. Things are rocky rocky again, and things sl- slowed down at work. So I could use some Mo Karma and would like to place collard greens and ham at the dinner table. My friend Carrie always jokes about us opening up a soul food joint and call it Honky Lips with favorites like <laughs> White Dog Do He Bite Hot Dog. <laughs> white Hot Dog Do He Bite Hot Dog. <laughs> oh, and a white piece of bread. I tease him all the time when I make greens and sloppy joes and send him pics. Public disclaimer, Sir Meager Page BLM Atlanta is not related and has never been related to the Page family of... Uh, Googleland? Googleland? Gooch? Well, Dutch in Dutch. Anyway, it's uh, Virginia. Do you know where that is? It's a county. That's near you, isn't no, it? No, I don't know where that's... The, yeah, I don't uh, know where Gooch... Gooshland is. I had to look it up. Gooshland hmm. County. I, have hmm. to, I will have to look that up. Okay, so Stephen wants a jobs, 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 and a wusa. We can do that. Jobs, 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 and jobs. Let's vote for jobs. Yeah. Onward to James Turner, 193, and James sent us a note. Mo and Adam, another Ronamo migrant here. I've been listening since episode 39 or 40 and have waited for a nice round number to donate. So 50 it is. Thanks for all you guys doing the podcast. It's nice to know that after listening 
that I was never a complete idiot when it comes to concepts of race in America, but the conversations you two have and Mo's nuance definitely hi- highlight aspects I'd either not fully considered or not fully understood as a white guy who grew up in the rural South, though I spent my entire adult life in urban settings. I currently reside in Louisville, Louisville, collect- he said, give me a pronunci- pronunciation guide, Louisville, <laughs> uh, L-O-O-L-V-U-L, but I'm sending a year... I'm spending a year working for the government in the Middle East. It's difficult to watch what's transpiring back there and causes great concern for family and friends so close to the demonstrations slash riots. If we could get a few more folks listening to the conversations on MoFax, maybe we could quell some of the foolishness and focus on what matters. I know the folks in Louisville could use a good dose of your conversations. It might help them identify uh, who is there to mourn and express frustration, who is there to foment unrest, and who is there willing to make things better. There are lots of good people and there that have the ability to come together and make things better if they can separate themselves from those that seek to sow unrest, whether from the far left or right. Could I get a de- dead beating and a little more karma for the folks in Louisville do- dealing with the unrest and having to, un- to likewise live with the COVID response of a pandering and overly ambitious governor? Keep up the great work. Thanks again for what you do here. This is uh, Jim Turner, P.S. Uh, Adam, I'm not in show business, but I do understand how slash why people show up as guests on TV, radio, or podcasts. Regardless, you're painting me as a dumbass on No Agenda twelve fifty. <laughs> I have no idea what I said, uh, but I apologize. I I don't think I ever intended you to to say you're a dumbass, but I have to go back and listen to it. And of course, we have uh, your request ready, sir. Congratulations, you're no longer. A deadbeat. David McAlley, McAnally sends us $100. He says that's $50 times two for the 50 episodes times two great tutors and hosts. Thank you both, Sir Davey of the Sooner Stage, and we thank you, sir. Uh, Dame J of the Angry Clouds who actually would like to be credited as No Agenda Dame J of the Angry Clouds. I'm no longer a deadbeat. Thanks to both of you for doing the work. Well, I'm going to give you this. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. Our next executive producer is Chisholm Cook. Mo, says Chisholm, I'm sure you've heard this a lot lady, lately, but I'm one of your new followers via the JRE rabbit hole. Yes, a Jomo. <laughs> a Jomo uh, producer. I've been obsessing about the obvious cultural war against manhood for years now. I had these disjointed thoughts, observations, concerns that are often hard to thread together and even harder to convey to others. I just want to say thank you very much for stitching together this quilt of deception and for confirming that I'm not, in fact, insane. Like you, I believe that godly masculine virtue is the only thing that can deliver us from this moment of chaos. You've helped me realize that black American men, Adolf specifically, are key to restoring some semblance of spiritual order. It's time for good family men of all colors and creeds to stand up alongside their godly women and say, enough, keep up the phenomenal work, sir, and Godspeed. P.S. A friend of mine and I have started our own podcast, Justified Pursuit. We're just getting going, and like you, we have a lot to say, so it's a work in progress. I hope you don't mind me leaning on and building off your teaching. Well, I don't think we have any problem with that. Our third episode on, quote, toxic masculinity drops tomorrow. And that's a, that may be already out, I guess. P.P.S., uh, you've convinced me on reparations for ADOS, generally speaking, not referring, not referring to the group. 
I have a campaign slash proposition I'd like to share. I would like to continue to pay Social Security for the rest of my life, but forego my retirement checks in order to fund reparations to ADOS. In addition, I propose giving ADOS people the choice between a check or a lifetime exemption from federal income tax. The only thing I've thought of so far that I would need to secure such a proposal would be a cap on my Social Security tax rate for life. I think this is a proposition that a lot of post-boomer Americans could get behind. It might even reduce the country's Social Security liabilities and stave off the pending collapse of that system. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. God bless, brother. Chisholm Cook. Well, there's a lot there. Uh, <laughs> it certainly rivals some of the uh, the reparations for Holocaust survivors to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of like the idea of it being the corporation uh, known as the United States. You know, it's not like we created the stimulus money, $8 trillion, and you had to pay for it up front to send it to somebody else. It was created out of magic. I'm just calling it and that because it's easier. That's <laughs> the most unsettling way. It's like, hold on. All this money flying around over Corona. And you threw some number out there per uh, case they were throwing around, like in the hundreds of thousands per oh, case. Oh, yeah. I, I, in some cases, uh, $200,000 per case in certain states from Medicare. Yeah. E- easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> now, that does get paid in as a tax. And, of course... You know, you have to pay the ferryman somewhere down the, down the road. But I do like the idea of reversing it and it being a, a a no tax. I mean, wow, what a great way to do it! So no income tax until X or oh, whatever. Yeah, I, that's that is that is that's very that's a valid that way of doing well. it. Yep. All these things can be discussed, and that's what politicians have discussed with us. Um, but it has to be something that you can see, touch, feel, uh, a tangible. Yes. Uh, onward with Timothy Vitafane or Vitafine, gentlemen. Thank you for this education. I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh wait, I think I missed the uh, D deadbeat for Chisholm. Make sure I do that. Congratulations! You're no longer a deadbeat. There's so much to read. I'm just doing it just in case. Um, okay. So Timothy Vitafine says I'm celebrating the 50th episode with my with fifty dollars and my 50th birthday with fifty dollars. And together, that is 100. Can I get a birthday biscuit and a mo- <laughs> and a, a birthday butter biscuit? Yeah. And a uh, Mo Jobs Karma. Yeah, I think we can do that. They always give me a biscuit on my birthday. And, and speaking of birthdays, I had to stop right here. I have to uh, send a happy belated birthday out to my big bro, Chili. Uh, thank you, bro, for everything. Oh, very nice. Here's the... Uh, uh, Mo Karma, Jobs Karma for you. Jobs, 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 and jobs. Let's vote for jobs. Yeah! <laughs> You've got Mo Karma. Our next executive producer, William Sola, with $100. Greetings, Mo and Adam. First wave Ronamo convert here. Rogan, No Agenda, Mofax. I recently exposed myself as a deadbeat on a No Agenda show, but I planned on donating for y'all's 50th all along. Ha <laughs> ha. I'll take a D dead beating, though. It's the only one I'm ever going to need. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. Congrats on 50 shows, gentlemen. I look forward to many more. I'm especially interested in your take on private prisons and the possible connection to Blow Jiden's crime bill. Oh, hello. Can I get some Mo <laughs> Karma for good health and continued success at the new job? 
take that, take that, take that. Much love and respect. Bill Solo from the rat-infested shithole they call Charm City, Baltimore. And uh, we really appreciate that, William. Absolutely. We'll give you a little Mo Karma there. Thank you so much for supporting the work. You've got Mo Karma. Neil Bottomley comes in with the classic boob donation, 8008, dear Mo and Adam. Uh, as a regular, and this is uh, our first associate executive producer, I believe, under 100. Uh, mm-hmm. as, as a regular No Agenda listener, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Joe Biden and his You Ain't Black moment for getting me into this podcast. Without his racism, I doubt I would have been curious enough to check the show out. On my personal wish list for future episodes Thanks, is that thoroughly charming and all-round nice guy, Louis Farrakhan, of, and his Nation of Islam, I'm sure there's a good story in there somewhere just bursting to get out. Keep up the good work, and please de-deadbeat me forthwith. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. I believe we can put that into the planning, can't we now? Something like that. For, I may have something to come to uh, I for that. thought so. <laughs> uh, our next associate executive producer, uh Frankie T? Yeah, Frankie T, I think it is. Let me see. It's down here somewhere. Okay. Uh, Happy half century, Mo and Adam. Really happy every time the next episode cues. Thank you for your courage. Both not much mouth left, uh, Adam, when you guys hit me from all sides. All the best. (laughs) Uh, Karma from Frankie T. And that's uh, that's actually, he sent us uh, 50 pounds, British pounds, and so that's how it came out to 6226. But we will still give you an uh, episode club member credit for that. So let me mark that. Uh, that's why I put that in there just to make yeah. sure he did get that. Excellent. Uh, then we have 5353 from Connor Lawrence. Well, 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 the big 5 What else can I say? Then this has been a wild ride for you, too. And I can't wait to see where the coming years will bring us. Above all, this show has given me so much hope for the future of America and race relations. If Crackpot and Mo can do this, so can everybody else. Yeah. God bless to you, both of you, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, because unlike the Mueller report, I believe the Durham report will list Mo Facts with Adam Curry as the best podcast in the universe. <laughs> Can I get a little Mo Karma for all of us out there for the show? May may you two have 500 more episodes, and can I get some of that sweet, sweet woosa with a stereo goat? Holy crap. People are making me work for the show, aren't they? With a stereo goat. Okay. Yeah, I think we can put... Where's our? Where's my stereo goat? And people who are new are probably wondering what the hell we're talking about. Before the Rona, I knew things were bad. Now I know they're awful, but now I have hope, and it's thanks to you. No agenda in this crazy, crazy world I've I dove into. Uh, talk to you for now. Ta-ta for now. Be good and be with God with love and reverence, your friend Connor. And let me get all these in the right order. So we want some of that sweet, sweet, sweet woosa with a stereo goat. Mo Karma. Here we go. You've got. Karma. <laughs> I don't work on some of these. I'm going to cross shows. Uh, Eric Hochul. And he is from Deutschland. A uh, loyal, loyal supporter of many Value for value properties, $52 uh, and no note, but we know all about them. James McLean, $51. Hey, I forgot to add my uh, note to my donation. Just like to thank you both for the great show, and we do appreciate it. Uh, Josiah Hendrickson, $50. Uh, we might have to put him in the show 
uh, number as well because he did send fifty. Oh, and then okay. he sent another dollar. Ah. So we, we'll make sure we get everybody right. We don't want to make sure. Special episode club number, you bet. Right. Josiah Hendrickson, dear Mo and Adam, if I start donating here, then move to No Agenda, then Joe Rogan do become a, 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 a mono row. A mono row. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> With my first baby on the way, it's time to stop being a deadbeat. Here's a piece of the pie I inherited. Best I can do right now. Is one dollar per from me per episode plus one cent for my little girl for her ally status. <laughs> you two are going to be a valuable part of her education, so she doesn't get brainwashed by the narrative. Could I get a mo karma for her health and success? Keep coming to the table and spreading the gospel. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, and you're no longer a deadbeat, so we get to do this. Congratulations, you're no longer a deadbeat. <laughs> You've got Mocom. And we got 50-50 from occult fan Sir Nathan Lee here was walking through the forest with my better half, future Dame JJ the Ladysmith, listening to MoFax 49 on my birthday. Went to both of our laughing out loud. I received my butter biscuit for my birthday. Yes. <laughs> you guys keep doing the great work. My show on Six of Swords might help clear up any misconceptions about what chaos magic is. And then even more some. Yes, indeed. It will be useful and valuable to you. I agree with that. Thank you both. Can I get a woosah for my Six of Cups show? Thank you. GBG hashtag. We know what it means. Give black guns. Give blacks guns. And that's from Sir Nathan Lee. And we appreciate that. And of course, uh, we got a woosah for you. Another 50-50 from Dennis Weirich. Congratulations on 50 episodes. Still have a lot of catching up to do, but have listened to at least half of the episodes. Fantastic conversations and mind-blowing revelations. I pass the blunt every chance I get. And please take me off that deadbeat list. (laughs) Let's do it right away. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. That's all for now, but more to come. Thank you, and Mo Karma slash Bitcoin, if you don't mind. What does he mean with a Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. Maybe, uh, well, maybe we can just do a Manning Bitcoin. We'll I'm do, thinking that. Do a little ISO here. I think we can manage that. So, and we'll give you the Mo Karma. <laughs> You've got Mo Karma. They're saying that all hell is going to break loose, and you're going to need a Bitcoin. And 50-50 from J, uh, Miss J, who says, uh, now, was there an email note? I don't see that I cannot. Here. I cannot find it under the email associated with the, with the donation. So, oh, okay. We'll send it again. Like with, uh, yeah, because with, um, I think she did Cash App looking at the, the screen. I mean, the donation list. And I just can't. They didn't put the email address with the cash app. Okay. Well, then uh, she. We'll can, get you on the next show. Sorry about that. That's right. You send it to us through email. We'll we'll take care of you. John Taylor, fifty fifty, just wants a wusa. Alexander Beatty, fifty dollars and one cent. Hey Mo and Adam, I made some fun ISOs for the show. Hearing Mo use the phrase "butter biscuits," I was reminded of a moment from the show "The Boondocks" that aired on Adult <laughs> Swim in two thousand seven. On season one, episode three, Granddad is about to leave for a date with a woman who is at least a third his age, and he doesn't know she's a prostitute. His grandson Riley doesn't want him to take her to the Red Lobster, and says, "This I have learned so much." And I believe no, most. You got to play the clip. Oh, you got to play, play the clip. Yeah. Uh, okay, the long one or the sh- yeah, the long one. I guess let's play. Yeah, let's play, play the, the long, long one. one. Don't do it, Granddad. 
Come on now, stop. Get off Don't my leg. Feed her the Don't try to pull me back. Biscuit. <laughs> Here's the short version of it. Get off Don't my feed her the Don't try to pull me back. Biscuit. <laughs> oh, that could become a staple. I like it. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, Alexander goes on to say, I have learned so much and believe Mo's message is very powerful, unique, and needs to be heard. Thanks for making such a great show. Sir Economic Hitman, Baron of Congressional Dish. Another fine podcast, also on the Value for Value model. Alex B., thank you. Uh, Douglas Mook, $50, no note. Donna Blanchard, 50 Hey, Mo and Adam, I sent some money along to you because you are worth it. I'm a 60-year-old white woman in Canada, and I searched for and found your podcast because I wanted some answers to all the crap that's going on with our southern neighbors, particularly the racial issue, as that's not such a huge thing up here. Don't worry, just wait. I am learning so much, and I thank you for your work. Keep up that great work. This is great. So she just found us, uh, you know, not through was, a, any other podcast, apparently. Yeah, I was wondering how she found that. that that's pretty cool because our, our title is kind of, you know, all over the place. So I, mean, yeah, I was just interested in how she, what, what she searched. I wouldn't like mind, kinda, yeah, I wouldn't mind knowing myself. That's very cool. That's like how I found No Agenda is, it's just a quick aside. I actually searched for news with no agenda, yeah. and that's how I got, that's, <laughs> that's how I became a producer. Quite un- <laughs> quite unbelievable. It worked, it worked. <laughs> it worked. All right, thank you, Keith and Teresa. Uh, no, Donna. Now we're on to Keith and Teresa. They're $50. Uh, love the show. I'm telling everyone I know that they have to listen. Keep up the great work. Thank you. That is a good use of time and talent and treasure. Paul Arsenault. Dear Mo and Adam, I worked at the Detroit-Windsor border during the New Jack City era. Thank you for explaining all of it for me and look forward to more enlightened shows. What what episode did we do that New Jack City on? Do you remember that, That Mo? was the Black Don't Crack, I believe. Okay. Good. Which which was yeah. I don't know which episode it was. I'm gonna look into that. Um, archive dot uh, dot com. Uh, Simon Libuzuski uh, Lib- mm, Libuzuski Simon Libuzuski, I believe. Hey listeners, be donating. Yes, fifty dollars. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for the example. Ella Leiblin. Correction. Correction. Hey producers. Producers. Be yes. Exactly. <laughs> producers. Uh, Ella Leiblin or Lieblin needs a biscuit for her birthday on the 28th. This show has helped my partner and I do the work. Can we get a D dead beating and a woosa, please? Yeah, we got to get you a biscuit. Too. They always give me a biscuit on my birthday. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. Dame Jennifer, also known as Jane Jennifer. Jane Jennifer. Jennifer Buchanan, $50. Congratulations on your upcoming episode 50. I'm so grateful for the previous 49, she writes. I think producers who've done the work and heard all of them so far have earned a BA in American Social Studies. If they also took their prereqs, of course. Uh, math. <laughs> XOXO, Dame Jennifer. Thank you, Dame Jennifer. Really appreciate all that you do for all the value for values things that I'm involved in. And of course, uh, I mean, that's her D dead beating right there. That's, that's and go check out her no agenda animation. Uh, oh yeah. Animated no agenda well. on YouTube. The animated no agenda. That is hilarious. It's, it's, she's so talented. A uh, couple more executive producer at the $50 level, uh, Sarah Halstead. Hey Mo and Adam, thank you for doing the work and helping us think about stuff we never thought of before. My husband, Kenny got me listening to the no agenda show and I got him listening to Mo facts with Adam Curry. We love them both. Keep up the great work. Congratulations. Episode number 50. Uh, Jingles, Woosa, Mo Karma, 
And I want this donation to go to Kenny Halstead to start his journey to allyhood or whatever y'all are going to call it. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. That is uh, that is very kind of you. So, yes, of course, we can give you a, a Mo Karm and a Wusa. Wusa. You've got Mo Karm. Happy. Wait, 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 wait. Did I miss wait, something? Wait. Yeah, let's get Roly Hawk. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to miss you there, Raleigh Hawk. Uh, $50 for show 50. Keep it up, Baronet and Sir Black and Black Knight, Sir Lineman of the Net, Raleigh Hawk. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Chris Malmy, who says, happy 50th. Chris and Janelle from Cherry Valley, Massachusetts. $50, thank you. $50 for doing the work, says Michael Olson. And John Cornforth uh, sends us $50. And Adam, the work that you and Mo are doing is critically important. I hope that you continue to expand your audience in these difficult times we find ourselves living in. It is reassuring to know that there are others out there that can see through the lies and false reality and that they have created for us. I refuse to be manipulated any longer. P.S. We are both uh, we both had more hair 30 years ago than we do today, (laughs) but let's not hold that against each other. Thank you very much, John. Rebecca Webb, fifty dollars. Associate executive producer. Wish I could add another zero to these production funds. Again, it's the value. That's what you determine. It's equally as valuable to us, and we appreciate it. Been listening since the beginning, but last episode was a knockout. KO. Loved your mama's advice, Mo. Yeah, everyone commented on that. And especially <laughs> how you did her voice was just uncanny. It's like I, I I met her. Already listened to it twice and about to hit the play button again, this time with my wife listening as well. We're learning more about this nation's history and culture than we ever did in school. It's like finding out you're adopted and learning about the rest of your family history and culture. Yes, it's it's it messes with your mind and you get you get used to it though. It becomes a fun ride. Not just the narrative you were always told. God bless y'all. Daniel Webb says, PS made a couple of donations before, but they've come in under Rebecca Webb. Ah, okay. So uh Daniel, thank you. And thank you, Rebecca, for letting us uh, for letting Daniel use your uh, your account. And then we have Daniel Hunt, $50, says, Hey, Mo, been learning a lot from you and Adam. Very grateful for the work you two are doing. Keep them shits up. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Cody Gray, $50, uh, love the show and keep up the great work. Recent Ronimo convert that is listening to the MoFax library, and I feel obliged to pay for the hard work and intelligence put into these shows. We thank you for that, Cody. And our final uh, associate executive producer and episode club member, David Weed, with $50 for the club. Uh, 50, of course, as I turned 50 on uh, the 5th of October. Very nice. Thank you for your courage. He says, please de-deadbeat me. Congratulations. You're no longer a deadbeat. And I'd like Mo Karma for my birthday. And thank you for the countless hours spent on research and the valuable conversations we need to be having and of course, uh, with uh, that for your birthday comes a butter biscuit. They always give me a biscuit on my birthday. <laughs> You've got Mo Comrade. And that concludes our executive producers, associate executive producers, and the show club members for episode 50 of Mo Facts with Adam Curry. We will be thanking a few more people in a second segment uh, uh, closer to the end of the show. We have a lot more to go, but again, thank you for producing this. It's under the value for value system. You can send us your time, your talent, or your treasure, 
And we love uh, putting the executive producers and associate executive producers in the spotlight. For more, go to MoFax.com or directly to the donation page, MoFundMe.com, M-O-E-F-U-N-D-M-E.com. And thank you all for your courage and for producing episode number 50 of MoFax with Adam Curry. All right, so we're post-Civil War now, but Cotton is still king. After the Civil War, many Southerners looked once again to cotton to revive their failing economy. The system of slavery was no longer in place, so another system of labor was needed. Cotton prices did not go up uh, after the war, and so sharecropping ends up being the reality for a lot of ex-slaves and increasing numbers of poor whites as well. Um, And people who used to consider themselves sort of yeoman becoming, kind of falling into that poor white category of sharecropping. So sharecropping becomes a system where instead of rent, people literally pay in a share of the crop. Uh, The landowner usually furnished um, the tools, the animals, the sometimes the seed. Um, Sharecroppers had a cabin that they could live in. And uh, the return on that for the landowner was getting a share of the crop. Now for the, the sharecropper, quite often they had to buy goods that they needed at either the landowner's store or another merchant's store, so they had to put the crop up as collateral or take a lien on the crop. Uh, and so at the end of the season, the sharecropper often had really nothing left and so went into debt again for the next year. No, something else I've never really been taught <laughs> properly in school about sharecropping and how that worked. This is good. Oh, share, uh, sharecropping was just slavery under under yeah, another name. name. And what it exactly. did was <laughs> it opened it up for more people to be slaves. It's like, oh, yeah, we can increase the work, you know, the uh, labor force. By you know, it, now it's not based off of color anymore. It's based off of a system of you know just oppressing people based off being poor. And, and you know, when I heard this clip, what came to mind is now what we're dealing with in modern times, where nobody wants to own anything. Yeah. Well, nobody can. Also, people can't own anything. It's become incredibly expensive to own anything. So that's why we have you know leased cars and. Yeah. We're sharecropping we again. Are, we, <laughs> we, you, are, you, we are. We are. Yeah, because that's what debt is. Is just basically you're borrowing off what you're going to make in the future, and then it comes out. You get you end up debt even or end up either owing, and then you know it's based off of what you're going to make in the in the next year. Right. So I would I want to point that out to people that a lot of parallels between now what's going on now and what was going on then. But I just want to let people also know that. The claim I'm willing to make stops at the end of the Civil War and 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 the emancipation of so-called black people. But if you want to go further, you can and say it, it persisted all the way up to Jim Crow. But I, I think that's a harder case to make. And I would just like to stick to what you, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove kind of thing. But we have a lot of evidence with sharecropping. And I come up from a line of sharecroppers. Uh, I actually have my great great grandfather's sharecropping book. He had immaculate handwriting, by the way. Oh, I love, uh, and, I love and old it, handwriting. That's beautiful. And it showed that he could read, which you know was also at, for that time very impressive. But not only to be be able to read, but also had 
uh, great penmanship. Just as you know, just yeah, as nice. I like it. Tidbit of information for me, and it's why we take the thing so personally. So when people say, you know, you want to have a lineage to slavery, no, these are human beings. Yeah, they just went through a system. But it's funny, nobody says that to, and I don't want to bring this topic up too much, but to um, Jewish people, they identify themselves. We could even say, oh, you know, you're white. You're white. I mean, you just be white. Ain't that good enough? Be white. No, but no. they have a particular claim to history. They do. And what they went through that identifies them separate, you know, from the quote unquote white people. Yeah. Uh, I, I so mean, why can't ADOS be the same way? Of course. We can, of course. We're part of the greater, larger group of black people, but we have a particular claim and a particular lineage and history, you know, that we're very proud of. I'm, I'm not not ashamed of anything that my ancestors went through, but I just wanted to say that. But that kind of just lays out um, sharecropping a little bit and to put a little bit more flesh on the idea of sharecropping. Let's get to slavery to mass incarceration three. Even as the Civil War raged, slave trading in Montgomery flourished well into the mid-1860s. After the Confederacy's surrender in 1865, Congress passed the 13th Amendment, which prohibited slavery nationwide except as a punishment for crime. But in many former slave states, slavery did not end. It simply evolved. Southern whites, angry after losing the war, targeted black people who were largely abandoned by the federal government in the 1870s. For decades, black men, women, and children were tortured, terrorized, and killed by mobs and violent lynchings, oppressed by a system of racist laws and customs. For another 100 years, black people were racially segregated, denied the right to vote, education, and basic dignity. They were humiliated, beaten, or killed for minor offenses or for protesting. The civil rights movements of the 1950s and 60s helped to end legally authorized racial segregation, but racial bias still persists. Yeah, and, and, and this is the uh, the Kanye kind of uh, topic where he talks about the 13th Amendment and, and how incarceration is clearly a form of slavery. Yeah, I mean, long we say if you ever committed a crime, it's okay. You could be a slave. Yeah, and you and, 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 you'll, and you'll 17th- be yeah, and you'll be making stuff for IKEA. You'll be making stuff for some some of the biggest uh, clothing manufacturers, uh, the the Commercial Corrections Corporation of America. At one point, most of it owned by Bill Gates. Just as a side note, and Warren Buffett. Hey. And a couple other people like that. Uh, that that's that's the business. Is you you roll in the human the human beings and you and, lock them up and you make them work. And you almost keep me down a rabbit hole with your last episode of No Agenda with the mass <laughs> incarceration and the, you know the companies behind. I mean, excuse me, the um, Circo. The uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I was I was holding on to the edge of the rabbit hole. I said, no, I you can't. You got to be can't. careful. No, you got to be careful. <laughs> that one goes so deep, Mo. It's uh, it's crazy. That's that's a real real deep one. No, we are going to go down it, but I was just saying, like for this show, I was like, no, not I can't, I one, can't yeah. do it. But <laughs> too not much. This one. Yeah. <laughs> way too much. But yeah, so this thing called uh, sharecropping with just slavery as another name under another name, and to further prove that point, I found this interesting uh, piece from Vice, and it's uh, a genealogist who tracks down modern day slavery practices. Although sharecropping was technically legal, the practice was widely abused by white landowners. 
who used debts to keep African Americans tied to the land that they once worked as slaves. Sharecroppers didn't pay rent, but they didn't own any property, and today, historians agree, sharecropping was just slavery by a different name. So many former enslaved Africans had nothing. They had no choice. At the end of the year, you owe me. No matter how hard you work, you are told, sorry. And those cases relate directly to your cases today. Right. After slavery, these are like 1921, 1930, 1940s, the 50s, and some of them to the 60s. Antoinette's very first case was May Louise Miller, a woman who was held as a slave with her entire family in Mississippi until 1961. Though May passed away in 2014, Antoinette took us to see one of her brothers, Arthur Miller. May and Arthur being two of the older sisters and brothers, they remember a lot. It took a long time before Arthur really opened up and talked. Wow, this is an... And this was kind of nice with with your uh, your grandfather that you know, that there's records of this stuff. There's plenty of records. You know why there's records? Because they were property. Yeah. And to have property, it's not about the you know the you know birth certificates or things. You had to keep you know yeah. records for tax purposes. Yeah, you you got to keep track of your assets. R- correct. Yeah. So there there are a you no know, a bevy of 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 uh, records and documents and all these things, and now with genealogy and mm-hmm. those kind of things, they can be dug up very easily. I mean, this lady here, she has one leg. She lost one to cancer. Mm-hmm. And she's kicking ass. No pun intended. <laughs> but the reason why I'm saying that is she could let anything stop her, but she not only does this, but she goes and helps other people single-handedly. Mm. I mean, this is what, these are the people that we need to be highlighting as heroes and right. You know, uh, leaders. I mean, if you want to use that term, or you know, be you know, be to be lionized. I'm sure she's not making that much money, if if anything. But she feels it's important that these people that have been held in slavery in 1960. Yeah. That which brings to mind that what, and it's not related in a way, but it is. But the colorism thing um, with the 1970s with the HBCUs. Yeah. I mean these these things died hard. Yeah. And when you go back and listen to the what Massa speaks, he said this. I mean, you could you have to listen to what he said. He said these things is like straightening teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, and he was very serious about it that they would not let their slaves go. And so and a lot of times slaves didn't want to go because yeah, you. That's it, a whole new world out there. Like, what do I? How do I fit in there? You know, I know, I know this evil. You know, they like they say like the devil that you know mm-hmm. is better than the devil that you don't. Mm-hmm. This kind of thing. It's like so. A lot of these people just willingly stayed on the, on these plantations, but other ones they stayed willingly because the other option they thought was death or what is going to be laid out in the second clip from Vice. We lived on, I don't know what would you call it, but something like a plantation to me. It belonged to several different white people. They all were family, I guess. And you couldn't leave. And if you did leave, they either come get you or or have somebody kill you or whatever, whatever. That's what, that's what happened. They did my mama bad. What they do to your mother? They just had my mother, you know, the white men. 
you know, they, they, they just do what they want to do with them. And uh, I just wasn't big enough to do nothing. If I would have been, I don't know, probably wouldn't be. And this was in the 1950s or 40s? That was on through the 40s and the 50s, all through the 50s and part of the 60s. So what would the repercussions be if you tried to leave or if you tried to refuse what they wanted? Back in them days, it's, it's, it was kind of like you had to do what the white man said or i get killed. My dad's uncle, he made him dig a grave and killed him. They kill him and bury him in his own grave. Jerry Dawson, they killed him. He lived around the same place we lived at home. He left and said he wasn't coming back. They wouldn't got him. Brought him back, got him right down there from his house, killed him. Hung him up in a tree. They hung him? They killed him first, casterized him, and hung him up right from his house where he's cheering everybody could see him. I don't know much, Mo, but I think the idea that you've got to dig your own grave just to be killed, is kind of a day wrecker. And castrated. Let's not forget castrated. Damn, man. And so I lay all this out. What's the time frame of that, Mo? 1940s, 50s, and 60s. That's what the... So we're not talking... That's what... People say, oh, slavery ended on this day. Get over it. You know, everything was peachy after Mm -hmm. that. No. 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 Now, for my family, luckily... No, they eventually were able to own land. I mean, a lot of times what you would do, I mean, just go back, give some context to sharecropping and cotton, those kind of things. If you were smart enough or you dealt with people that was on the up and up, which was very rare, um, you could eventually have enough kids to where you could work the land, make a profit off of your, you know, your goods and buy your land. Mm. If you were lucky enough, I mean, that, I mean that, like I said, I'm, for me to be sitting here right now, a lot of things had to fall into place in the right way. Right. So I don't want ever want people to think that I'm the norm uh, and neither are these people. This is not the norm, but it's somewhere in between there. Uh, but I'm just saying these things exist. And to keep this structure and this system in place they did things like create the one drop rule. Explain what the one drop rule is. The one drop rule historically, also known as the rule of hypo descent, was really instituted to protect whiteness. It was a way for the white majority to be able to name and incite who was white. So it was one drop, which is one thirty second. One thirty second of Negro or African blood would make that person Negro or African, whatever the classification they used at the time. I hear people say we're in a post-racial society. The reality is in order to get beyond something, you have to understand it, right? Mm -hmm. And where in your education, where have you been required to learn about race? They don't teach it. No, it is the foundation of this country. We have to talk about race. We have to talk about racial difference. It is just a flat out lie for us to believe that we've moved beyond race. How long ago was that when Don Lemon had the Dr. Yaba Blay on? I mean, that's. I'm thinking 2012. It was in the Obama and I was going to say it's kind kind of a semi sane conversation, which I don't think (laughs) Don Lemon is capable of anymore. You know, he's he's. He's a victim of the narrative. He really is. He really is. But there's a good guy hiding in there. I can't help but think it. He 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 knows. He knows. But he's in the a weird position, I guess. Yeah, he is. And for her to say that no racism is the foundation of this country, 
if people hear that at first and don't go through the previous 18 clips or 19 clips I laid out, they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it freaks you out. Exactly. But when you understand how sugar and cotton were the fuel, the rocket fuel for this nation, and how that was basically manufactured from black hands, black and slave hands, I mean, because there's no other way you could pick those crops uh, up until 1927, as stated, you know, from the Southerners themselves. Now you understand why you say racism, this country is based off racism. But if you just throw it out there without explaining it, people are like, what are you talking about? I mean, like, I don't... don't, Well, it's not even even racism. It's the... um the country developed as the country developed people started of course it took way too long uh, but people started to figure out like go back to the beginning oh wait a minute these these people these are people these are human beings so it was a it was a dual process not a racist thing it was just complete ignorance and god you know did they they barely believe the the world was round <laughs> i mean it was a lot of learning in the time allegedly round but uh, <laughs> thank you <laughs> Oh, <laughs> no, I had to say that. Yeah. Oh, so you have to take all this in context. Even the founding fathers knew when they were writing the, the the Constitution and you know the Bill of Rights and all these things, they knew it was wrong. But it's like for the greater good, we're building this nation, and it's going to be a beacon of light, you know, hope, you know, against a monarchy, and you know those kind of things. Like we might have to. D- dabble in human trafficking or 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 ownership of people or you know making people seem like property but it's for the greater good because you saw a lot of the founding fathers freed their slaves at their death right right <laughs> like, right you're I'm free. not gonna butt the system while i'm <laughs> alive free. but when you're i free. when i die <laughs> yeah. so they, they had an understanding of it but it's i'll say this how many of us gonna give up our nikes right we know yeah, for sure. How do. many of us gonna give up our iPhones? Nah, we know. So. I don't think so. So I mean, you when we judge these things, we have to use a bit of a uh, nuance, and not only that, but don't be hypocritical. Because we know how we get our Nikes. We know how we get our hair weave. Oh, you know, we don't want to talk about that. So I'm, I'm not. What I'm not. I'm not. Point, I'm just saying we have to look at things in a certain perspective and say in that time it was acceptable but now that we know better what are we going to do about it because there are people that still have real life repercussions I mean this guy is 1960 he could easily have children my age or grandchildren my age it, it, you know it's it's kind of sad just thinking through it how the cotton industry, which made uh, sugar and cotton, made uh, America uh, the the powerhouse that it is. That was the whole the whole genesis of it. That we have so easily flipped that, and uh, now we just got some Uyghur slaves in China handling the cotton. You know, it's like where there has to be a bottom. There always has to be a bottom. And that's the narrative against capitalism, right? I mean, that's the that's the one <laughs> knock on capitalism the one, that there always man. has to be a and that, and I'm I'm saying that because it opens the door. We're going to get there, walk through that door in a minute. But to speak about the bottom, we have to go back to throwback on clip from show forty eight, and this is when we brought in the idea of the ritual sacrifice 
and striving to be white. Gerard isolates three distinct bodies within the community, the model, the rival, and the ritual victim. And he sees within the community a driving function of competition and the potential for violence. So the model, in our case, the plantation elite or elite whites, are in possession of an object. They're in possession of something. In the political realm, we might think of this solely as capital. But if we think of it more broadly, they're really in possession of something called white, which stands for all sorts of things concepts of election, and purity, goodness, and providence. And I was uh, doing research in the in Widener Library at Harvard, and they, they had this book, um, and it had something like the 23 races of English people, which, which sounds surprising, right, but not really, right? It all feeds into that chain moving towards the elite model, the person uh, who is holding the desirable quality at the top. Now, elites are able to generate allegiance, uh, and they are able to generate disciples by making whiteness a desirable quality. Yeah, and uh, as we've discussed many times on the show, <laughs> that, that was very big in Europe, bringing some white people for power, political power. We'll just call them white. Right, and then you see why it's binary now. It's either you're white or you're not. Yep. Now, and it's crazy because you could have one child has three white grandparents, one black grandparent. He's black. And nobody blinks the eye when you say that. Like, I'm, I'm black. I mean, look at Meghan Markle. Mm-hmm. Um, her child is considered, could easily consider itself black. Mm-hmm. Nobody would blink an eye. But you could have three white grandparents, one black. Um, you could have three black grandparents, one white grandparent. And you can't call yourself white. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, what system? No, I'm just saying. What system? If you met somebody and they, they, you know, they pretty much would look like Barack Obama, right, or, or right. maybe even darker, right? And they say, "I'm, I'm, I'm you know, like, you know, who? I mean, they explain to you and they say, "Oh yeah, I'm white," and you're like, "What?" And <laughs> like, yeah, no, no, I have a grandparent. One of my grandparents are are, are a wasp. It wouldn't. It wouldn't set well with people. No, of course not. But if you put that 180 degrees, no, we're all used to it. It's good to go. If if I forget his name, the baby, you know, what I'm saying the baby Markle or whatever, you know, comes out and says, <laughs> "No, I, I identify as black. I identify my blackness." Nobody says anything. Exactly. So that goes to show you the one drop rule is, <laughs> and this yeah. driving to be white is still alive. And and for the one drop rule, I'd refer you to uh, episode number nine is where you can go yes, hear that, that one curve. again. It's very it's well worth it. One of the one of the big oh, aha moments for me. Yes. Now we had to venture on to episode 43. And like I said, a lot of this is going to be throwback now, but I had to lay out how we got to the conversation that we had. Mo, you're just ratcheting us up to the top of the roller coaster. We know what's happening. We know what you're doing. Go ahead. Tighten the chain. Let's get there. All right. So take in mind sharecropping, being lynched, digging your own grave, uh, being castrated. What if someone Com- showed up and just just said, hey, we can help? How about communism? How did you get interested in this topic? 
And as I mentioned, it is a sensitive topic because there are those for decades who've worked to tamp down the suggestion that anybody in the civil rights movement was attracted to the Communist Party at all. Exactly. And this is a story that actually predates the civil rights movement as we know it, going back to the 1930s. I became interested in this as a doctoral dissertation back in the mid-80s when I was very active in a lot of social movements, in actually in the L.A. area. And I wanted to know how the Communist Party organized African Americans, particularly in places where black people were the majority. And there I discovered a very vibrant movement that very few people wrote about. There basically were two stories, one memoir by a man named Hosea Hudson, and then another story in a book called All God's Dangers, which was about him, an African-American sharecropper. All that God's Dangers, the life of Nate Shaw. I remember that. Exactly. But his real name was Ned Cobb. Nate Shaw was a pseudonym. And it's a beautiful book that tells his life story, and only a portion of it deals with his membership in the Communist-led Sharecroppers Union, which at one point had about 12,000 members in the Black Belt counties of uh, Alabama. And were all the members black? Well, in Alabama, there was a point when basically all the members except one were all African-American sharecroppers and tenant farmers. (laughs) I love that. This is why I say what I say about atonement and justice. If they were to atone for what happened and give these people justice, you don't create a hotbed for outside interests to come in and weaponize people against you within your borders. Mm. This is bigger than black people. This is bigger than ADOS. You're creating an environment and keeping an environment thriving for Marxism. Hello, do we not see what's going on? BLM Inc. Funded by who? We don't have to say who. We know who. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just saying. So it's the same. I'm drawing these parallels now. The same environment where Marxism, communism could thrive or the idea could thrive still exists today because the atonement has never happened. And once you do atone for whatever happened, now it's like, you know what? I de-weaponize your victim claim, if you want to look at it that way. You know, you can't bring that up anymore. Fine. I won't bring that up anymore. And and the people that didn't go through that, we could at least like, you know, you know, you're not ADOS. What are you what's your complaint? Right. You know what I'm saying? You can't you came here, you know what I'm saying, on your own free will. Why are you what what do you have to do? I mean, this is this is this is family business <laughs> in a way, because mm-hmm. it's um, but yeah, I, mean, I hope to see why this is important. Why well, this because, conversation because is we're, happening? Yeah, we're making we're making the same stupid mistakes. What has been resolved? Nothing. No. And uh, and I'll say that on both sides, the Boule membership don't help. I mean, I mean, uh, Boule leadership doesn't help because they just come in and they you know uh, we've had the conversation. I didn't clip it. I didn't add any clips in here. They just profit off of black suffering. Yes. Like, oh yeah, look how poor, you know, look how bad the black people are doing. Yeah, yeah, give us yeah, your money. Yeah, we'll manage the money. We'll manage the money for them. We'll take care of it because you know they, they never, only buy Gucci, so we got to take care of it. And it never reaches the people. Yep. And then you have this perpetual suffering and victimization that thrives, and you know, as a you know a breeding ground for these foreign ideas. Which, trust me, 
we know how communism ends. Yeah, poorly. And really, if and I'm gonna say this, and it may be a hot take, if the South got their act together and would willing to free their slaves, I would think they would have probably won the Civil War. Yeah, I, I, I think that's yeah, a real possibility. That would have changed the course of history. And then you fast forward to now, the only problem the Republicans have with black people is race relations. Yeah. If you just want to take it to political, <laughs> if they resolve that issue, a lot of the, you know, uh, planks of the Republican Party, black people are on board for. Black people are very conservative, you know, um, faith-based. I'm, but it's that one thing, it's that, <laughs> it's the pee in, in, in the mattress. I mean, uh, that, you know that that won't people let people rest is this race relations which atonement was solved for and like i said it's not a but i'm just explaining to you this is the tangible ask right this is the maturation process of 2020 of black people in america it's like you know what's going on you know what happened as the internet came about smartphone youtube a lot more people know (laughs) it's not like i'm digging up these facts from you know ancient or antiquated yeah well, textbooks we, we have such uh forces working against this type of awakening this type of knowledge you know with just uh, com- uh you know we talk a lot about it but with narratives and and positioning statements and entire and and I think a lot of these people actually may not even be so bad-willed but they're financed by people who have no good in mind often and then people just, you know, they've, they've gotten a story, they're underinformed, and they go out and they do whatever they think is right. And it's, it's, it's such a destructive, vicious cycle. And what was the takeaway? Just fast forward, I'm saying, bring us to real time right now before we get back into the clips. What was the argument and the big takeaway from the debates? Trump's a white supremacist. That's he the wants only another thing. white supremacist. That's the only thing. <laughs> Nothing else came out of it. You're so right. Oh my. Yeah. Who are they talking to? <laughs> yeah. I keep telling you, this whole election hinges off of what black men are going to do. That was the whole talking point of the Democrats. Is oh, he's a white supremacist. He want oh, he won't. You know, he won't denounce. He's he kryptonite. Denounce. He's kryptonite. Black people. And here he comes with a plan. Like I said, I haven't looked at all the nuts and bolts and, of the plan. And uh, it sounds very similar to Mary Ann Williams' plan. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> I think he might have, um, uh, you know, borrowed that from her, even down to the dollar amount. Well, we talked but about on this there's, show. there's no doubt when you want to package something, he's the best. Of to, course. To package that up as the, as the platinum plan for America's blacks was <laughs> Trump. He, he understands the culture. <laughs> he does. It was way, way, way over the top and just perfect. What's in it is not really what you're looking for. I agree. No, what what, what I'm saying is, and it's this weird thing, because I'm, 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 I'm going to draw a point. Mary Ann Williams' whole point was atonement, right? We, ha- we have a spiritual problem. Mm. Race the race problem is really a spiritual problem. That's what she kept harping on about, even though she comes from it from a new agey kind of point of view. But she was saying it's this spiritual, like, you know, not to put words in the mouth, like infection that we have that has to be, you know, you know, purged. She comes up with a $500 million plan. Mm-hmm. Everybody 
on one side claps yeah 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 but then the other guy comes with a 500 million i mean bill excuse me 500 billion dollar plan yeah it was like boo (laughs) i'm just going to show you how narrative works but let's get back into these uh the clips and the second clip from uh how communism was brought to um to the south how did the communist party get started in alabama In 1928, the communist position internationally was that African Americans in the South have the right to self-determination, meaning they have the right to create their own nation in the South. Uh, And it's a position that came out of Moscow. It came from other uh, black communists around the globe. And with that idea in mind, they sent two organizers to Alabama and they went to Birmingham and they chose Birmingham because it was probably the most industrialized city in the South. And they went there thinking they would organize white workers, and from white workers, black workers would follow. But no white workers would come forward. And so the first two organizers was a, a guy named James Julio, uh, who was a Sicilian worker who had migrated to Alabama, and another guy named Tom Johnson. And together, they went out looking for white workers, and black workers came. And black workers came in fairly large numbers right away because for them, they had a memory of Reconstruction, a memory of the Civil War. And in that kind of collective memory, they were told that one day the Yankees would come back and finish the fight. Well, when they saw these white communists, they said, oh, good, the Yankees are here. We can't wait to join. This is one of my favorite clips from all the episodes (laughs) we've done, episode 43. It's so, it's so, now you understand why... When we look at uh, Black Lives Matter, Inc., and the uh, self-avowed trained Marxists, Mm -hmm. like this is it's a repeat of history. It's a total repeat. And it's it's kind of maddening when you think about it, because this is this is not taught. And this is not the only iteration of this, because a lot of with the black plant back Black Panthers, they were big Maoist, very big Maoist in his little red book. Yep. Uh, But. I, mean, I, I, I won't go down that rabbit hole on this show, but yeah, the, the, this America's going. I'm gonna just say this: America is gonna keep playing with fire, and this thought process is gonna take hold if we don't put it out the racial fire. Yes. Well, this, this is this a is real... the time. This is the time. I mean, it's time to do it. That's why, especially with. The bullcrap doing the work, you know, white fragility. I mean, people are trying to solve this with very, very uh, either poor intentions or just idiocy. No knowledge of really what what's what the background is. So, yeah, this is the time. This is the time to to stop it and get some education out there. We're just going to keep going through this every 20 years. And imagine when a foreign nation or if a foreign nation steps in and say, yeah, give them what they want. Give them that tangible. But we're, it's going to be on the path to Marxism or communism. You, or could flip the, you could flip the country to Russia in a heartbeat. Or any, yeah. Or China. <laughs> or China. I'm telling you, because I'm, I'm, capitalism has its problems, but they pale in comparison. And that's just my personal belief. I, 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 and, a, and a truly, and we, not, like, we don't live in a capitalist society right now. We live in a corporate society, a techno technocracy, however you want to put it. Yeah. In a true capitalist society where you buy for one, sell for two, everybody, you know, um, 
have equal chance to, you know, loans and funding and those kind of things and best man wins. And that's what I'm for. Mm-hmm. Not everybody gets the same thing. No, healthy competition, no. which is basically capitalism, free markets, the stuff we are built on. Right. But as in it's called, it's called race. So there is a competition within the competition. <laughs> and I would love to see it more looked at like the Olympics. All the nations come together from their different nations, different colors, creeds, religions. And they say, okay, who's the fastest runner? Who's the highest jumper? Who's the fastest swimmer? Why can't we do that with economics? Why do we have to tilt the scale? Mm. Well, it doesn't behoove the very rich people. Now, does it? Well, they better be careful because that's the first ones to get get it. Sometimes your your head winds up in a basket sometimes. You never know what could happen. I'm I'm just saying it it can't be that bad to deal with this. Um, But, okay, so that's covering the people that stayed in the early 1900s, you know, mid to mid uh, 1900s in in American um, South for black people. The other option was to leave the South if you were able to. I mean, because as you heard in the previous clips, that could end up in death. Mm-hmm. But if you were able to leave, you participated in the Great Migration. This map shows the Black Belt of the United States. Its name comes from the fertile soil associated with the region. And for most of America's history, more than 90% of the country's largest minority group lived here. Starting in the early 20th century, nearly half of the African-American population left this region to resettle in emerging northern and midwestern cities. It was one of the largest internal migrations in U.S. history, and now data indicates that a new movement is taking shape. To understand why, let's go back to 1865. The Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery and started a new era for colored people in the states. Shortly after, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments enfranchised people of color at large. For the first time, the majority of black Americans controlled their own destinies. In the years immediately following emancipation, most freed slaves chose to stay in their communities. After all, the only America they had known was the South. It was common for their descendants to work as sharecroppers on plantations. Sometimes their only payment was permission to live on the property. But that wasn't the worst aspect of the South for blacks. The Jim Crow caste system determined where you could eat, what platform you stood on when you were catching a train. This was a rigid caste system in which any breach of the caste system could literally mean your life. That's author and journalist Isabel Wilkerson. She spent 15 years compiling the stories of black exodus to cities in the North, Midwest, and West. The movement would come to be known as the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. The only problem with the Great Migration was you left the South, you left everything you knew, you left your land, and you went to these cities where you were you you weren't weren't really um, wanted. No, and there was and no, and lot, there was no food because you couldn't have land to make food. So yeah, there was that was a, a tough journey, a tough tough destination. And a lot of times the women were shut in the house all day. I mean, it wasn't safe to come out in the neighborhoods they had they were forced to live in. Uh, it was one uh, piece called a tenement. That I'll get into later on in one of our in one of our shows to come, that it was a hellhole. Mm. It was a hellhole, and black publications pr- participated in this propaganda to draw people to the north. 
Now, the, the Great Migration lines up almost to a T with World War One. Mm. The begin the first wave. Mm-hmm. Because you had a lot of white men going out to fight, you had to backfill those jobs. You backfill those jobs with people coming from the South. Now, I will say this, as we heard in the previous cotton clip, the mechanically picking cotton came about in 1927. So that put a lot of black people out of a job. So they had to go north. And then you had the pressure of the, you know, uh, the KKK, mm. which was nothing but a, a domestic terrorist group applying pressure to run people north. But it's it's very it's very sketchy what was going on there, man. I mean, <laughs> and like I said, this is this is not only a throwback, but this um, show, but this is also what we're going to get into moving forward, breaking down what happened in the Great Migration. And this is the birth of your, one of your favorite words, urban. In 1915, African Americans began to leave the Black Belt for these new industrial centers. By 1929, 1.5 million African Americans had resettled in new northern metro areas. At the time, America's participation in World War I drove demand for manufacturing labor. But strict immigration laws left northern factories with a shortage of workers. Factories in the north started recruiting low-skilled workers from the south. The workers faced discrimination in their new homes, which culminated in the red summer of 1919. Migrant blacks, whites, and European immigrants were all competing for limited housing and resources, which exacerbated relationships in city centers. The most prominent of these settlements for migrating blacks was New York City, and the art, music, and theater that emerged from this community became known as the Harlem Renaissance. These artistic achievements redefined the cultural image of blacks in America. But the stock market crash of 1929 and ensuing Great Depression slowed the influx from the South and effectively ended the first migration. The second wave began in the 40s when World War II kick-started manufacturing again while agricultural employment in the South plummeted. Once again, people living in the rural South began to migrate to cities. Manufacturing hubs in the West were far more prominent in this second movement but only a fraction of skilled labor positions went to African-Americans. By the end of the second migration, an estimated five to eight million blacks had resettled outside of the South. Kind of interesting in the context of uh, how uh, immigration, or certainly illegal immigration, has affected uh, ADOS blacks in America. And that's just a mm-hmm. mo- it's, it's still a modern topic. And back then I was like, well, we had really tough rules, so, oh, well, I guess we'll have the black people come up and do it. They're our own people! Yeah, and and <laughs> and the crazy thing is, so we got to look at the first wave, second wave. We're both driven by global wars. Mm. That was it. And a couple points I want to make. One, the way they use propaganda. So they would use stories like Emmett Till. Emmett Till was it was a true happening. Mm. But you got to think, why would the American press pick up on this story? I mean, there's no benefit to it to you know air out your dirty laundry right unless you want to use it to scare black people in the south hello to give up their land and move north now i'll give you a uh i'll give i'll juxtapose that to a story that happened in chicago at a beach a black kid was swimming on the black side of the beach floating i think he fell asleep or whatever but it ended up floating into the white water area you know they stoned him to death in the water yeah, I think we. I think you told me this one before. Yeah, so I think we went over it. But what I'm saying is, but that never made the news. Why? 
because you want to keep keep the people flowing north because that's cheap labor. Right. Cheap labor puts pressure on your white workers to drive down wages. So we're, we were always used as this <laughs> wedge or, 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 you know, a mechanism. And then it, when you see like now, even with black people, we're saying it, Hey, why are you letting all those illegals come in our country? Yep. They're taking our jobs. They're keeping the wages low. Mm-hmm. You had the same thing going on with, so-called white people because they were only allowed to be white when it was convenient for the truly white people, you know, to beef up their ranks as we talked about with the, the gangs in New York clips from the previous show. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, yeah, we got to graft them in where our numbers are low. You know, okay, you could be white. You could be white. You could be white. And to show you that this bottom idea is not only white against black, but black against black as I laid out with the political class of black women are using black men now. The first wave of black people that went in the 1914s hated to see the black people coming in the 1940s. Right. They even had codes and laws like, oh, you can't sit on your front porch or you can't eat watermelon outside and in your front yard. That kind because of, it was the optics. It's like we're good, good upstanding black people. You can't bring those uh country bumpkin uh ways up here. So there always has to be, I not keep saying it, but it always has, has to, to be, be a, bottom, a bottom. A bottom, yeah. And that, so that's like a Baltimore scenario where it's uh, all ADOS uh, running the city and they're keeping the bottom right where they want them to be. Because they campaign off of the bottom. Yeah. It's like, look at all this crime. We got to do something about it. We need more money. We need more funding. We need, you know, uh, we need more programs and the money never trickles down to the people. Right. So, I mean, I just say that it's like, okay, stay in the South and be indoctrinated with communism. Yeah, <laughs> <or> move, <laughs> north, move north and be isolated from everything you know because we're agricultural people. And I'll say that just even now, me being back in the rural area, sunshine, fresh water, fresh air, it unlocks something in me. Mm. I can't tell you what it is, Adam. I cannot tell you what it is, but just being here took me back to where I came from. Sure. And I'm not ashamed to say, I'm not saying my grandfather had an outhouse. I used the outhouse before. I mean, like I said, this is not, people want to antiquate this stuff and make it so far distant. Yeah. But take history. It, it's yeah, not taking it back to Kunta Kinte, but no, that's not the way it is. It's not, like I said, I've used the outhouse before several times. Have to go to the well, get water. Those I was going to say, you, you know, you should wash your hands before you come to the podcast. That's for sure. <laughs> well, you, I mean, very, very clean. I mean, very clean, but it's just saying, to put that in context. Isn't that crazy? We're in 2020. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I, you know, four or five years old. I mean, in my lifetime. Um, So I, just, just to lay, lay that out that those were our two options. And then we went into cities while I brought up urban because you always say, what does that urban come from? What is it? Now the new synonym with black was urban, was city, was, you know, these city centers. Was, they used to call yeah, them chocolate met- cities. Yeah, par- yeah, yeah. Parliament, Funkadelic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> used to call them CCs. Yeah, you know? chocolate city. Uh, yeah. So you have these things and it goes from, okay, black being synonymous with rural agriculture. Now you have it with Urban, uh, urban, urban uh, uh, projects, right, right, 
this when the projects came along and the public housing and we talked about those things and where are we at on but there was progress made from the 1940s to the 1960s and you don't have to believe me believe thomas Sowell. discrimination and disparities quote the plain fact is that black the black poverty rate declined from 87 percent in 1940 to 47 percent in 1960 prior to the expansion of the welfare state that began in the 1960s under the Johnson administration. There was a far more modest decline in the poverty rate among blacks after the war on poverty <laughs> began. Close quote. How could that have been? Well, it, it, could, be, it could be because uh, the things that they thought was, were going to help did not help, and in many cases made things much worse. Uh, one would be the welfare state. Uh, which provide and, and the other would be things like minimum wages, which just price people out of their jobs. It's amazing how that simple concept never seems to get through to so many people. Mm. All right. Crime. And in this case, you're writing not only about African-Americans, but about low income people generally. In the United States, murder rates, rates of infection among with venereal diseases and rates of teenage pregnancies were among the social pathologies whose steep declines, declines were suddenly reversed in the 1960s. Nowhere was rampant violence and other social pathology as common among low-income people in the first half of the 20th century, when they were more deprived, as in the second half, when the welfare state had made them better off in material terms. Close quote. Again, it's not the intention of anybody mm-hmm. enacting the welfare state to cause increases in violence, mm. but it happened. This is where the... Or is it? Uh, yeah, really, exactly, it happened. <laughs> this is exactly where, where the, you know, the, the, the phrase, um, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, comes from. You have a war on poverty. What did it create? Well, kind of poverty. War on drugs. Huh? War on terror, anybody? Um, what was the trade-off for that help? Yeah. But also, talk- I, I'd like to point out that, uh, and this is this is always seen as a Republican, grand old party, uh, conservative, right-wing, crazy-ass talking point. But I can tell you from listening to this and the learning, minimum wage is actually racist. <laughs> yeah. Here's, here's the problem with minimum wage. You keep less entry workers from working. Yep. And what I mean by entry workers is you build your work ethic at 13, 14, 15 years old. Mm. I started working 14. I mean, I Pestered my mom and dad about getting a work a worker's permit. Start working at 14, 15 years old. When you get in the habit of work, getting a paycheck, spending your money, messing up your money, blowing your money, realizing, you know, <laughs> you that le- kind of you thing. You learn some things along the way. <laughs> right. So by yeah. the time you get 20, you know, you got it figured out. Hopefully, you know, that I need to spend less money than I make. Or, or I'll end up a slave, debt slave, nonetheless. But <laughs> nonetheless, but yeah. a slave it is. And mm-hmm. When you have kids on the sideline at 16, 17, 18 years old that never held a job because the guy's looking well, I had to pay him eight dollars an hour. Well, I could pay them four dollars an hour and hire two of them. I can only hire one of them. 
right. you have all these other this is the problem with minimum wage and the thing is is when you let more people in the workforce it's going to create competition and you know the competition is going to drive up the wages naturally mm-hmm. like and i don't want to sound like a you know like an <laughs> like economist part of, <laughs> economist or you know that kind of thing but it just makes sense that way but he said i don't think they did it on purpose or did they no come on gee who's big on minimum wage bernie sanders number right. one minimum oh. wage guy he knows how, how it works you got to almost and, think he's evil right and then they bring up the welfare state and part of the welfare state was no man in the house and this is where i have to give you and john credit these next three clips were discussed on no agenda way before there was a mo facts and, and i got People think you come here, Adam, like, oh, he's getting there. No. You were all around this thing, like, you know, at the edges, like, no man in the house and, you know, DOS. You know, but it was, it wasn't. I was a diamond in the rough. I needed to be plucked (laughs) and shaped into the jewel that I'm becoming. You were willing to do the work, but there was no work available. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, did, I didn't know what, what plateau to work on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I had no context. No one giving me anything in the in the quote unquote mainstream media or anything that that I could look at until uh, until you came along. Absolutely, it just wasn't there. But you were you were there because I mean, if you want to get into twenty seven. Before we moved into Pruitt Igo, the welfare department came to our home. They talked with my mother about moving into the housing project, but the stipulation was that my father could not be with us. They would put us into the housing project only if he left the state. Yeah, people really don't know this. This is still such an unknown fact. And I was alive when this was taking place. But you were covering this because, like I said, this comes from a no agenda set of clips. Yeah, I hear you. And we were probably going, and we were probably going like, Wow, how about that? That's weird. What's up with that? No one ever talks about this. And of course, I never knew the whole background to it. But yeah. Now you ask, was it done Was it done on purpose? Or was it, no, it just, oh, well, we screwed that one up. And if you did screw it up, how, if, if okay, say if you, it was a truly a mistake. No, it, it, the whole stop. It can't be a mistake. They had they had uh, armed guards you know, or, or, you know, tattletale brown shirts running around to make sure that this wasn't taking place. No man in the house. That's a that's a program. That's not a mistake. That's well, I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, because no. that's what I do. If it was a mistake and this was happening in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. Why haven't we fixed that? Why haven't we put the energy to say, hold on, how do we get the men back in the house? You right. know, um. Black families, you get a double tax credit. <laughs> anything, <laughs> yeah, anything. There's a whole bunch of ways to do it. Of course, you can stimulate that easily. But that's not what they did. Mm-mm. What they did was, all let, and then when DNA showed up, okay, let's ramp up the family courts. And, yeah. let's, and let's, have, let's have a fight over that, you know, the man's check. Yeah, let's do yeah, it on Jerry can, Springer. Let's make it into a circus. Amari, you know, I mean, like, right. we talked about that before, yeah. where it's just nothing but a, that's really a game show. 
Yeah. And then it's no sweat off the off of the um government's brow, because you gotta think like this. If he is the father, he has to pay for it. If he doesn't pay for it, he goes to jail. Yeah. If he goes to jail, that's free labor for us. And then guess what? His kids are probably gonna be criminals too. And that's two or three more future workers in our uh, industrial complex, uh, industrial prison complex. Yeah, when you say it like that, it sounds pretty sick. <laughs> doesn't it's, doesn't sound too good, does it? I'm just saying, and I haven't seen any resolution to say, "Hey, how do we get those? How do we get those men back in the house?" Not, none of that. It's it's more it's more of the same thing. Uh, but let's get more into the uh, no man in the house from no agenda. The welfare department had a rule that no able-bodied man could be in the house if a woman received aid for dependent children. If a man lost his job, he's looking for work, he still had to leave the home. And there was even a night staff of men who worked for the welfare department whose job was to go to the homes of the welfare recipients and they searched to find if there was a man in the home. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> if, if people really knew this, which is so easy to, to find, I mean, it's not that long ago. And just to give her historical context to this, I live with my grand. I told no, I told the story before, but just I'm meant to give the short version. I live with them. They lived in um, low income apartments with a lot of uh, where for uh, single mothers and when the welfare people will come, this is 1980s. This had to be 84, 85. Yeah. You would see all the men running, running out the out, back door. Running out, yeah. So this is not 1940s, 50s, or 60s. These things were still going on in the 1980s. So it's not, it's not, and, and we could talk about how all what we talked about previously feeds into this. So this is nothing, this is nothing new. And it's nothing old either. I mean, it's, I mean, I know. It's, what does he mean? But it's nothing new because it existed for so long, and it's nothing old because it existed for so long. If I if I make myself clear, mm-hmm. um, go ahead. Wait. Well, it's just it's not exposed. There's no incentive for the, for anyone in charge to expose these. I mean, because it's so easy to take that up until 1980s. To the entire baby mama culture, everything we witness now, the the end result being 75% of children growing up with no father in the house. And that's, of course, not just black now. It's, it's, it's all colors of the rainbow. It's, it's created a very destructive culture. And, and to speak of things that we haven't spoke, we spoke on the crack epidemic, which that plucked men out of the house yeah. and at, a, at a tremendously high rate. Before that, you had uh, Vietnam, which disproportionately impacted black men, plucked them out of the household, and then it sent them back home with, with drug the drafts, habits and with act- the drafts. Yeah, yeah with drafts, uh, which sent them back home with alcohol, uh, alcoholism, or heroin, drug habits, heroin, or just, heroin. Yeah, or dealing with just the ill effects of war itself. Yeah, <laughs> which you know. These are all things we're going to discuss. We haven't, like I said, we haven't even scratched the surface of the surface on the bottom. (laughs) And so, again, I'll remind everybody who's made it up to this point. What's being discussed on the street in the media is 
well, you just hate that person because of the color of his skin, and these problems are because you you are bad white person, or you're an ungrateful this or that. It's really is so unrelated to the core issue that it's just a cover up. Just a cover up, and and you and the people that's supposed to be voicing it do it so abrasively that it, it's a non-starter, which we always. On this show, we try to diffuse or avoid non-starters because we want to have a conversation. We want people to go to the table and you know and work it out. But I guess we can wrap up with the final um, no agenda, no man clip. I remember vividly my mother telling us if white people come to the house and ask you guys questions, tell them that your father is not here. Tell them that your father has never been here and you have not seen your father. I trusted her. I knew that there was a reason that we had to, to do this charade. And I participated in the charade. I, I sat there and looked those people in the eye and told them with the, with, with, with the, with the uh, pure earnestness that no, I have not seen my father and no, my daddy does not live here. And, uh, but I knew that I was lying and that made me wonder who are these people and how they have the power to make my mother lie. We're giving you money. We want to be able to control you. We're giving you money. So we have the right to make stipulations as to how you use it and what you use it for. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's how you do it. And I say to people all the time, it starts with us. It starts with us. How do you think UBI is going to play out? It's going to start with you. No, we're giving you money. (laughs) Oh, I know. We're giving you money. And this is what you're going to do. This is how we control you. Yeah. Take this shot. Go here. Don't go there. Don't move at these yeah, times. You yeah, know, move yeah. at these times. Well, that's that's always the control. Absolutely. You give people money, you got control. And that's the importance of our conversation that we have each week. And we follow the model <laughs> of the, uh, laid out to us by... Yeah. Go ahead. Laid out by the one and only Malcolm X. Here he is. Listen carefully. First, the white man and the black man have to be able to sit down at the same table. The white man has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of that Negro. And the so-called Negro has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of the white man. Then they can bring the issues that are under the rug out on top of the table and take an intelligent approach to get the problem solved. That's the only way that they'll ever do it. And that work has started here. It started 50 episodes ago, and hopefully we inspire many more to do that. And I do want to take the opportunity here to thank the rest of our producers for episode number 50, our big uh, anniversary show. And we're just for brevity, we're going to do one. Most of these are one-liners anyway, under under 50, uh, just so we can get through to the end of the show, keep it within uh, within some length. But thank you all very much for supporting us. And uh, that thanks goes to uh, Computer Solutions and Services, $49. Now, it says show club donation, so 
That probably I came in he, on the yeah, last came show. In, it came in right at the end of the, you know, cutoff of last show. So All he right. is a member. Okay, so, yeah. so it definitely becomes a member. And thank you very much. I wanted a Wusa. We'll hand you that one. Wusa. Tony Shin Tung Wu says, Mo and Adam, you guys rock. Thank you with 4750. 46 uh, from Clinton. Way Elway to pass Adam. Well to way. To pass uh, pass Adam the blunt for pleading blood of Jay. Oh my goodness! Translated, Mo. What the hell am I reading here? I have no I idea have what's going on here. Way ill. I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. We like it. We read it for you, and thank you for your support uh, producing the episode. Same goes to Juho Malmi with forty five eighty eight. Adrian Workman says greetings to both of you, beautiful souls. Most sincerely, thank you for dive after dive you take all the listeners into. I'm not sure how you can blow my mind so hard, so continuously, and so consistently. However, you do it, uh, and uh, we really, he wants some input on how you conjure the magic. Well, that's that's a whole nother story, and uh, we're going to keep this one short. <laughs> but Adrian, thank you, 4233. 4033 from Fernando de los Reyes. Mo, my dad wants to give me a 40th birthday shout-out. Happy birthday, Fernando. Doing the work, Fernando Sr. That means They a, always give me a biscuit on my birthday. You got yourself a biscuit on your birthday. Uh, Chef Elvis Rosenberg, 3333, magic numbers lining up, and says, great work on Hotep Jesus. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Amanda Hedrick, 33, all other podcast listening has stopped since discovering MoFax with Adam Curry. Started from the beginning. I'm already at episode 21. The amount of value I've gotten from this podcast is immeasurable, but here's a little bit until next time that I donate. Thank you, Amanda. Sherry Laurie, $30, great research and education, she says. Andrew Watson, 25 Michael Bale, 2020. Ronan Pelk, $20.20. Happy 50th episode. Excellent work, guys. Woosa. Woosa. Shazir, $20, catching up on the shows, and that's some value for value for us. Raham Trulio is doing the work and sends us $20. Rhett, $20, love your show, man. Curtis Thomas, two uh, donations in a row. Thanks, Professor Mo. I'm working my way back towards all the lessons. This is really high-quality work you're putting out. That's $19.80, and then comes in with $12.34, uh, with no note, and what is that total? How does it does that total something I should be aware of? Um, I don't see it. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's all good. Jason Kemp, uh, ten dollars. Just started listening to the show, loving it so far. Trying to get caught up on episodes in between episodes of No Agenda. You guys are the only glimmer of hope and sanity for those of us who refuse to become just another sheep in the flock. Well, you're not. Keep up the good work, says Jason. Thank you. $9.41 from Cortland Richardson. Shazir again with $7. You can't go to no embassy for help. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, $5 from Matt Hedzke, Stephen Polamain, sole proprietor. Always love that. And Rory White, Matthew Libertor, $5 says you're changing the world one listener at a time. Thank you. We appreciate that. And here's more Curtis Thomas. It was just all over the map. Hey, love the show. Totally at a loss for words. Thank you both for your commitment and energy. Much love from the Thomas clan. And they sent two of those in along with the previous two. So they've just been uh, racking up the, the sats for us here. And we appreciate that. 411 from Terry Keller. And keep the faith, says Robert Grezik with $2.50. And that concludes all of the donations for MoFax with Adam Curry for episode number 50. Our big 
even though we didn't really promote it up front, everybody knew this was going to be a fantastic celebratory episode. <laughs> and I think this is a good one because it's a great on-ramp for people who are coming in. So it, and when it comes to time, talent, and treasure, you got to go out and hit people in the mouth and uh, give them this episode if they want to start and then show them where they can go back to episode number one. To support us for episode 51, uh, anything you got from value for this, please just write down a number and uh, go to mofundme.com to send it off to us. A variety of methods, M-O-E-F-U-N-D-M-E.com. And thank you all for producing episode 50 of MoFax with Adam Curry. As you just heard from uh, Thomas Sowell, from 1940 to 1960, black people were making huge strides and um, progress. With that said, we saw the no man in the house, the the welfare um, system come about, welfare state, excuse me, come about. So the media had to get in on the uh, act, and we this comes for episode uh, twelve, and this is the media, MLK, and the civil rights movement one. As a story, the civil rights movement had it all: good versus evil, drama, social upheaval. But at first, America's major media ignored it, especially in the South. It was our responsibility to find a way to dramatize the issue. Congressman John Lewis says that the movement's leaders realized to bring change, they needed to reach white Americans. How did you do that? As a movement, we literally put our bodies on the line influence on the civil rights coverage. Hank Klibanoff co-wrote The Race Beat, a book about the media and the movement. Well, race was a big story in the South beginning in the 40s and 50s. It's just that no one knew about it. Finally, by 1957, major northern newspapers discover the drama and the story. How do you feel about integrated passengers? The television networks followed. Even major southern media paid attention to the open hatred. You've got to keep the white and the black and the violent response to peaceful protest. If you're going to beat us, beat us in the light of day. Beat us while the camera's on. This was Selma, Alabama, 1965, among the bloodied John Lewis. American people could not stand it. To see young children and old women being knocked down by fire hoses and chased by police dogs. Yeah, it was a golden era, man. Once we got it on TV, <laughs> oh, that was it. You heard him say itself. They had to dramatize it. That's right. Now, what was going on behind the scenes, a lot of black people, just like now, how they try to paint us as a monolith, a lot of black people in those time didn't want integration. They wanted separate but equal. Like, let us have our own community. Let us have our own schools. You know, give us the proper funding. It was more of a governmental issue. It's not like I want to live on the same block as you. I just want to make sure if you, I'm paying you get the same, same taxes, services, you get the same services as everybody else, same level. And it wasn't even commercial. It was more with the yeah, government, government service. Was, yeah, school, yeah. health care, everything. Yeah, I mean, they, they went a little I'll overboard pay. on the health care with the Planned Parenthood stuff. But, you know, it came from a good heart, Mo. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the thing is that. I honestly believe now I will say a lot of those leaders are probably naive and thought, Oh yeah, the integration thing, that's a good compromise. But when you, and like I said, I'm not pushing for segregation in itself, but I'm not pushing for forced integration either. 
which I think is a very bad idea when you take people and just smash them together and like y'all deal with it. I mean, the government <laughs> says that you, you know we're gonna put. And the reason why I say this is just getting a lot of personal, you know, uh, reflection from me. My dad was moved in his senior year to an integrated school. Mm. Oh, bust? Hated it. He was bust? Well, the top town was small enough to bust. There was no bus. bus. Okay, he could walk. (laughs) He walked. He walked there. Yeah. But it was like, no, you can't go to the school, these schools that you went to for your last 11, 12 years. So in that context, how important important is uh, the president's, current president's, school choice initiative very is that that hitting home is that making an impact yes because it gives you the power it gives parents uh, the power to choose where you spend the money and where you make the school better right right and along with integration came social promotion whereas my dad would tell me if you were 13 years old in the third grade if you couldn't read on the third grade level you weren't going nowhere with black teachers right whereas when you went over to you know integrated school there was like oh well we'll help them out a little let them slide well, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Right. I don't want to be too hard because mm-hmm. if you keep failing all these black kids, all your racist, you know, and then if you don't, if you do pass them along, they can't read all your racist. Yes. So either way, you're can't a racist. Win. Can't win, yeah. So it's like the thing that would bring you the less amount of grief is just like pass them on, pass them on, pass them on. Path of, e- of least resistance, yep. Exactly. And and it's destructive. So, it's so destructive, and it, and people don't see it. This has been going on so long. No wonder people are having such trouble with this. They think they've been doing all these good things, and I, I guarantee you, when Kamala Harris talked about busing, you know, whatever, and however she felt about it, and what's true, and she was there to 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 slam Biden. I think a lot of people heard that for the first time. They never heard of this. They didn't know what it was about. Didn't get it. And then it's like, really, you were made to do that? Well, that's just crazy. And you, I think they were entered in, in to go along with the clips here. They were indoctrinated with the little black girl with her school books, and you have uh, rank and file of white people go home, go home. We don't oh, want yeah. you here. You know, that's oh, yeah. the mental abuse, uh, abuse, abuse, and the mental imagery that's painted with that. That when you want to say, when you say school choice. It's all we're going back to segregate schools again. We've already been there. I mean, mm-hmm. that's basically what people do. They go and cycle, send their kids, to, <laughs> they send their kids to private schools. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't want my kids going with school with poor kids, <laughs> not necessarily black kids. I mean, that's what uh, Joe Biden said, but you know, I won't go there. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, they use the media or the media used, they thought they were using the media, but actually the media were using them yes. to make inroads, as we talked about with MLK and JFK, to have uh, strengthen their political base. We will dramatize this whole situation by marching by the thousands. Television also found Martin Luther King. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. will face the nation. Americans heard a leader who shattered racial stereotypes. We feel that the time has come for a full-scale assault on the system of segregation. This man is someone you could actually talk to and who seemed quite reasonable. And for white Southerners, this was new information. And part of a national awakening. It was the media that carried our message to the rest of the nation. Protest became progress once the media woke up and Americans rose up. Thank God Almighty! Mark Strassman, CBS News, Atlanta.
And I'd just like to point out that this is the point where Malcolm X was no longer in the picture. I uh, could not get the same media attention. It was all MLK. But he had the people. Oh, yeah. See, see, that's the difference. Like, everybody was like, well, they're with King now and, you know, because of the product more of the King. Now, like I said, I'm not going to denigrate him anyway, but we also have to attack the narrative that was being used, that he's used to fuel. Uh, like I said, he's agreeable, and you know he all oh, he he shadows the stereotypes. What are those stereotypes? Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't I don't understand what they're trying to say there. What, what 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 were you thinking beforehand? Like, oh, they can't. Oh, there's one that could form a sentence. Let's, <laughs> let's talk to him. Oh, he's very articulate. That's the that's the that's that's I'm, what, I'm, that's what Joe Biden said about Barack Obama. By the way. And he's clean. I think he's, he's clean. Also, he yeah, he's, he's clean. clean. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> He'd be perfect for president. Gosh, we should elect that guy. The, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to say anything. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the point is made. <laughs> no, because no, this, them picking our leaders for us. Oh, uh, yeah. It's like now, Patrice Cullors and the whole Black Lives Matters and even Talcum X over there, uh, Sean King. Um <laughs> How do you get to pick our leaders? I would rather hear from the lady who was doing the genealogy work. I'm that's I mean, if you want to talk about somebody actually in the field doing the work, let's hear from her. Right. And this of course also explains people who are who are doing the work for themselves, and then Adam Curry shows up and says, Hey, you know, ADOS and and uh, and I can understand it's a knee jerk reaction, like, Oh, what are you trying to lead us now? I get that. I get that. Not offended, by the way. Right, but we also got to judge our allies a little better too. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. no, I'm just saying in general because it's some great opportunities out there that you might run off by, you know, just judging somebody so quickly. Well, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be honest with you, which I always am, but mm-hmm. I feel privileged. I feel privileged because I can go out and speak my mind because for good or worse, the society and we're in, I can always say, "Oh, but look, Here's my friend over here. This is who I'm who I'm learning it from. So I have like a, a shield, which is not entirely fair, <laughs> but I do have it, and I, and I use that uh, subconsciously or consciously. I feel good. I and you know you won't hear me say, "Well, my black friend Mo." You know, I don't say that, but I said, I've been learning a lot with my friend Mo, and so and, and it's more than me. It's the information. Yeah, well, of course, it's that you can you can knock down those narratives. It's like, oh yeah, what about this? It's like, no, no. And, you know, you, you, you slice them up. It's like that, that's not going to fly. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is I want everyone who's listening to this to use the, to use Mo facts, Mo facts with Adam Curry as that shield that you can point people toward and say, well, here's where I've learned it and who, here's who I'm learning it from. And here's the information that's being presented. And please counter that so people can feel a bit better about themselves, about speaking the truth and being honest. Yeah, like they said, the truth will set you free. Oh, it doesn't ever. <laughs> well, countering the narrative of the MLK and the Civil Rights Movement, our guy, Malcolm X, uh, he was all about the ballot for the bullet and um, black nationalism. The political philosophy of black nationalism only means that the black man should control the politics and the politicians in his own community. The, the, time, the time when white people can come in our community and get us to vote for them so that they can be our 
years and tell us what to do and what not to do is long gone. same token, the time when that same white man, knowing that your eyes are too far open, can send another Negro into the community and get you and me to support him so he can use him to lead us astray. Those days are long gone. <laughs> they were long gone until they came back. <laughs> How sad it is. And this is what year? I think this is 1963. Three, I think yeah. it was sixty-three. Yeah, and and the thing is, it's common sense. Yeah. Every other group does this. Is like when you go talk to you know the Italians or you know Hispanics, they yeah. won't yeah. you know uh, people either that look like them or align to their um, their political ideology. Mm-hmm. With us, it's here now. You acquiesce to what he's telling you right. or she's telling you. That's not how politics work, and the reason why I'm just opposing. Mm-hmm. Uh, MLK to Malcolm X is not to cause any fissure between the two because both of them, when you actually get to know the men, make great points. It's that we need, we are at the point now, a lot of black people like, we want to pick for ourselves and we want to hear what you have to offer. And if you don't have anything to offer or anything that's going to sustain me, you have no you have no inroads to my vote and they were here no what uh 60 years ago mm-hmm. look me at 50 60 years ago yep and it was what what did they do they gave us um black politicians <laughs> that was the, that was that was the new black preacher was the black politician it's yeah. like here you go here's a guy that looks like you but when they go in the black caucus they vote all the Things that don't help us. Or they even brought John Lewis in, the guy who was on TV. And once he got in there, it's once you become part of the system. Yeah, that's where it goes it, wrong. It makes you, it, it's just like what we were talking about. Once you need your own land and that, I know we're talking about agriculture, but the same thing here. You need your own land. You need your own area your own space let's use that word they love to use that word you need your own space that way we can have a communication within ourselves and say what 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 do we really need all right Right. we're 75 percent illegitimate uh illegitimacy rate we need more fathers yeah Uh, what else do we need we need skills uh because we don't have anybody to build these things for us but i don't want to belabor the point but i'm just saying that we can go over some of these ballot the bullet clips but Maybe let's just jump to straight to five because I mean, he kind of re, you know regurgitates the point over and over again. But for the brevity of the show, let's just jump straight to five. 22 million black victims of Americanism are waking up and they're gaining a new political consciousness, becoming politically mature. And as they become uh, develop this political maturity, they're able to see the recent trends in these uh, political elections. They see that the whites are so evenly divided that every time they vote, uh, the race is so close, they have to go back and count the votes all over again. And it, it, which means that any block, any minority that has a block of votes that stick together is in a strategic position. Either way you go, that's who gets it. You're, you're in a position to determine who will go to the White House and who will stay in the doghouse. You're the one who has that power. 
God, it's so, so good to hear that. It's so good to hear that, man. It really is. It really is. It's like he was looking in, he was in a time machine and coming to this very, very moment. He was from the future. And this is the points that we laid out in the most recent shows. Black men hold this election in our hand. And it doesn't take us to go vote for Donald Trump or, you know, it just only takes us not to vote. That's what's scary. I'm telling you, that's what's scary for the Democrats. Well, it's I, not I, I, that I, I, they have to activate us. Yeah, I, w- I want to say that uh, we were talking about this on a previous episode, and someone got really mad and said, I can't believe that you just went along with Mo saying, I'm not going to vote. It's un-American. And I say, that's there's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to exercise your vote by casting it for a certain person. It is the power that that one vote holds that you can use, as far as I'm concerned, any way you want to use it. And and if you want to take a bribe for it, fine. It's your vote. You, <laughs> I mean that. You know, if you no, want to yeah. sell it, you know, it doesn't matter. But if you want to withhold it, it's just as powerful a message. Just can I, can as I powerful. Explain, can I explain that for a minute? Because I get, I get, I, you got it once. I get it. I got it maybe 10, 15 times. Let me explain to you when I say not to vote. If you want to vote in your local elections for your school board or, you know, um, those kind of, you know, votes or a proposition that you want to vote yay or nay for, that's fine. What I'm saying is in in the presidential election and even national elections in general, let's just say that. The reason why people say, why don't you vote for for third party or won't you write yourself in? It's the symbolism of one number voter turnout if we can drive that number down so low that's a message we we started this show out on episode number one on that point they realized uh i think it went under like 56 i believe or something like that it was some it was it was, 50, sub, it was sub 60 yeah, yeah 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 56 i think so if it comes in at 49 45 what that tells both political parties oh they're in play here, here's the pitfall, though. Here's the pitfall. The mm-hmm. way the media is today, they will spin this and make it something that it's not. That's what voter you got to be careful for. Of course. Yeah, it'll be voter it'll be- suppression. Exactly. The black man was not allowed to vote because the evil uh, Republican Party and the white men, it could be any party, suppressed right. it with because he didn't have an ID or whatever the hell they're going to come up with. That's exactly right. But let us speak for ourselves when they come to make that claim. Let, we'll let them know. No. We know what we were doing. You didn't give us a viable option, you know what I'm saying, on, on the table. We chose not to participate. It's it's for far more power because if you go and vote third party, it masks the disapproval or the disappointment we have in the current options. Right. That's what we're trying to signify here. Now it's not about being lazy or, you know, I, I don't want to go out and I don't want to make a choice. No, it consciously, I'm speaking for myself here, consciously, and I hope other black men are thinking the same way I am, or at least will hear me out. If we're making a conscious decision to say, okay, you got this guy over here, you got a $500, million, $500 billion plan. By us not voting, it's going to symbolize that and give us access to that. So be it. I'm not doing anything for him. Right. But Democrats, you're not going to use me to block him either because what have you put on the table? It's about political, it's about being politically mature. And what, when they come around with that, you know the narrative, oh, you know we're going to get blamed. 
already prepare yourself for it. Black men yeah. didn't save the republic. You know what I mean? No, it's going to be... Doomed us to another four years of uh, uh, well, you know, orange man uh, bad. Well, we're going to blame it on Kanye, obviously. That's where it starts. Blame it on Kanye. And, and his voters. And his voters. Of course. And I think Kanye is jumping on that grenade for this very purpose. That's fine with us because when they want to come... You know what? If you want to be that ignorant, continue to do what you do and see what happens in the next four years. Right. And what I'm speaking about is this is not no lifelong commitment. This is a four cycle four year four, by year, four cycle. year cycle right. even two year i mean it depends on what you're putting on the on the midterm ballots yeah uh but yeah where's the tangibles so yeah i, I know i get a lot of that pushback oh you're not gonna vote you need to vote for, go vote for yourself no it's this is a conscious and deliberate effort to push that number down as far as we can so they can see that's all they understand the metrics mm-hmm. that's the only thing they understand and they say oh what what did malcolm x say he said, when there's a voting block available, <laughs> yeah. don't take my word for it. I mean, try it out. Take it, take it out, take it out with Malcolm X until they give us something. Then we don't have to um, deal with them. With that said, these male leaders had to go. Yep. In comes the CIA agent. Gloria, at the festival, you worked for the Independent Research Service. That's right. Well, exactly when did your own association with the CIA start and in what fashion? Did they come to you or did you go to them? In 1958, when I came home from from India, I discussed with student leaders past and present, uh, many of them active with the National Student Association, uh, this kind of small foundation to encourage Americans to go. They thought it was a good idea, too. I was then told by foundations and professors and friends that it, that I should not do this, that I would get in trouble with the House on American Activities Committee, the American Legion, all of those 50s people. Uh, and I became convinced that it was impossible. It was at that point that the student leaders said to me that they had in the past received funds for international programs from the CIA and that they felt that this was important and could also be partly funded by the CIA. Ah, yes, the Gloria Steinem story. Uh, episode 21 of Mo Facts, if you want to listen to it in context. But yes, here comes the feminist group into the mix. So I know you're saying, Mo, how does that play in? So what we're going to do is we're going to cut to the chase and go straight to 39 and say how Gloria Steinem targeted black women. In 1978, Gloria Steinem put a book called Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman on the cover of Ms. Magazine. The book was written by a black feminist and activist named Michelle Wallace, who came out of nowhere. Wallace was in her early 20s at the time, yet she was being touted as the leader of black feminism. In the book, Wallace called abolitionists like Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth ugly and stupid for supporting black men. She called black revolutionaries chauvinist macho pigs and advised black women to go it alone. Gloria Steinem said that Wallace's book would define the future of black relationships, and she pushed hard to make sure the book received massive publicity. Gloria Steinem's work triggered a flood of hate black men books and films that continues to this day. Needless to say, some were quite suspicious of Ms. Magazine and Gloria Steinem. Why was Steinem sticking her nose into the affairs of the black community? So people started doing some research on Steinem. When it came out that Gloria Steinem was probably the ghostwriter of the book with Michelle... 
Wallace's name on it. Wallace had a nervous breakdown and went into hiding for two years. And I'll take a stab at uh, translating that to today. Not only do we not have any male leadership of note in Black Lives Matter, Inc., or the movement for that matter, um, right now, and I've, I have it for on my clip list, you know, for no agenda or maybe for us in the next episode, the mm-hmm. message now going out from Democratic Party operatives is the most abused person in America is the black woman. And it's funny you say that. <laughs> I, I didn't step on you, did I? I no, step. no. You know the source of that, what they're using for that, and they're going to back up that claim? Hit me. Malcolm X. <laughs> they're wow. taking it totally out of context wow. because... Oh, no way. Yes, I'll, I'll find that clip because he actually said that. But he was talking about the women in the context of the time he was speaking of. Right. Six, Not now, because yeah. po- post his death and post MLK's death, the these agencies and the, the liberals cut deals with black uh, feminists. And if you talk to him now, Gloria Stein is a hero to them. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's funny that they talked. That, That's yeah, interesting. No, I didn't know that. I didn't know that they were using a, a quote from uh, Malcolm X out of context. And by the way, that's you know, danger of Will Robinson. We got to make sure that that's counteracted because that's really, really I, horrible to how do did, that. How did you think I knew exactly what, where the source was? I saw that cropping up myself. These narratives. This is what we do here. Yeah. <laughs> we, we identify the narratives and defuse them before they're used. And that's exactly what they're doing they're going to take his quote twisted and if you spoke to malcolm x now he will be completely uh, horrified horrified with how black lives matter and you know those groups are are, are carrying themselves so yeah so d- d- good job adam <laughs> <laughs> i've been doing the work mr mo i feel you good now. extra yeah. credit <laughs> hold on a second they always give me a biscuit yeah, on my birthday. i'm getting a biscuit <laughs> i'm taking my own biscuit yeah so this final clip, this is a black Vietnam vet. He went and he served his country. And I want, he speaks the frustration that black men have with people that think we want something for free or we just want something, a handout or something. And I thought a good way to wrap this show up because it's kind of the sentiment now of black men. Like, we don't want anything less or more than the old, old to us. You know, this, this this revolution is filled with so many ironies, really. Uh, first, you tell us that it is manly to keep your word. All right? If you are a man, you keep your word. And now all that the black people in this country are demanding, and even the black people in the whole world are demanding, is that you keep your word. You told us we were free. Well, then show us that we're free. You told us that there is justice, equality for all in this country. Well, then stick to your word and let us see the justice and equality for all. Or else admit to us that you're not a man. You're a worm. You're afraid of us. You're afraid to give us equal stand. You're afraid that if you give us equal ground that we will match you and we will override you. And if that's what you're afraid of us, then then tell us that just what you're afraid of. But don't keep hiding it from us and, and holding this up to us. And every time we ask you for something, you give us a little bit of something. And it's all tokenism. We don't want tokenism. And there are most black men in this world that don't want charity. 
And yet still every time we ask you for something, you give us a little piece, a little piece. You're playing games with us. We're not children. We're, we're big men. I've seen my father have to put up with all kinds of stuff. He was a big man. He raised a family. He went down south and he had to go around to the back door with his wife. We're not asking for anything. We're not asking for any favors. All we want is what's ours. And when I look at YouTube, there are so many black men now uh, with this type of language <laughs> and 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 this type of vibe and mission. And and you can it's now it may just be the algo spitting that out at me. I don't know, but I see it and I think it's good and I think it's happening. It's not just the algos because it's happening in real life because. You start when you talk to people you haven't talked for a while. They'll get to, we'll fill each other out. Like, what do you think about this? You know, it's we're we're getting on message. We're getting on code. Uh, we're going to take back our families, take back our communities, and you know, steer this thing in the right direction. And whoever's not on board, I, I feel sorry for them. And number one is, yeah, I like your starting point, take back our families first. And that flies right back to our donation note about big brothers and big sisters. Exactly. Start with your family. We all could do better than that, no matter what what color. That's where you start. I mean, that's where you win the battle at. Is that the, at, at the, that's the table. It's the that's, dinner table. That's the la- yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. that's the big table. Exactly. That's the big table. Exactly. Uh, well, I hope everyone enjoyed this as much as I did. It was so nice to, even though I've been through you know, the 49 episodes so far, and um, and it's it's a lot. It's a lot to take in for anybody, but this is a, such a great refresher and so current for where we are today, except, of course, that we need to have the big heel comeback uh, special uh, <laughs> by the president, <laughs> which, will, which I'm sure will cause all kinds of other things to crop up, but... Um, we'll be here and, uh, and Mo will lead us through it and we'll, we'll deconstruct it and figure it out together. And as I always say, pay attention to everything and the truth will reveal itself. And remember us at mofax.com, M-O-E-E-F-O-U-N-D-M-E.com, mofundme.com. And Mo, thank you so much, man. I had a great time. All right. See you later, Adam. Talk to you next week, everybody. But you gotta understand something, baby. There's gonna be a whole lot of ups and downs. I know. Sometimes you're gonna wanna smile. Sometimes you're gonna feel like crying. But I'm gonna stick right on it. But if we're gonna stay together, you know what? What? Just say that, uh, We've only just begun to live white lace and promises. For luck and we're on our way Oh baby Together Together When the evening comes Girl you know I'm gonna smile so much time for here we got to start out walking, learn and run. Oh, baby! Oh, it's just begun. Oh, it's just begun. 
that star.